Alrighty. Howdy, everyone. Good evening to y'all. Uh, top of the morning to you. I'm trying to think of some other ridiculous greetings that I can use to, again, uh, fulfill the f- function of killing a few minutes or seconds as I wait for people to file in. And as we wait to get underway in a very, another very exciting edition of what I know is all of your uh, favorite time of the week, which is when you get to listen to me uh, do a soliloquy about pertinent issues. I know I would love to listen to myself do that, so I'm jealous of you. Um. Before the midterms happened, or before Election Day anyway, or rather, it was actually on Election Day itself. So the afternoon of Election Day, I told someone that I was genuinely unsure as to what the outcome would be. Or I didn't even have enough confidence, really, one way or another to make even a private prediction. Now, I don't tend to be in the business of making public predictions, unlike uh, Richard, my co-host, who may or may not be showing up tonight. Um, But even though I don't publicly make predictions, I find the whole enterprise to be a bit tedious, and I also find it annoying that people who make predictions, like as statements of fact, and then are proven disastrously wrong, I find it annoying that they never really pay any price or there's never any repercussion. Um, And I just feel like if you're in some sort of job or you have some kind of position which entails you making public pronouncements of fact or public pronouncements of some sort of predictive certainty and then when your pronouncements are dramatically undermined uh, you should there you should pay some sort of price right otherwise there's just no there are no stakes to what you're doing and um, and so that whole genre of punditry which is more or less just kind of speculative fiction or uh, forward-looking kind of aimless prognostication I try not to engage and obviously I can do variations of analysis or reporting or what have you that might potentially provide some insight into things that could happen in the future. But I just uh, would prefer to honor the epistemic limits of what I'm able to actually say with some degree of certitude. And um, clearly, projecting what's going to happen in the, in the future is not something I can do with any degree of certitude. Unlike, you know, if I, you know, report something or see something or observe something that's in the, in a temporal realm that I can directly engage in. So that's not really what I tend to be inclined to do for the most part. But, you know, in a private conversation, if somebody asks me, what do you think will happen? You know, you know I'm not perfect. I can sometimes indulge in sort of, uh, casual prognostication. Uh, But in this case, I said to the person that 
there seemed to me to be a range of such a range of plausible scenarios. Um, and within that range, I'm not at all confident that one scenario is necessarily going to be more likely than the other, that I really just have to uh, abstain from making any real uh, predictions about the outcome. Um, because, I don't know, I had seen a lot of um, potentially countervailing uh, evidence or mixed, re mixed reasons to believe that certain outcomes might be more likely than others. Um, I had been to a, a bunch of campaign events for both Republicans and Democrats over the past uh, two weeks or so, and this happened to be in uh, western Pennsylvania, eastern Pennsylvania, uh, central south New Jersey, northern New Jersey, uh, and then uh, like uh, Orange County, New York, and different parts of this kind of southern tier of New York State. And, you know, I could extrapolate sort of frivolously from different anecdotes that I might have come across in terms of, you know, perceptions of enthusiasm or who seems, which party's voter base seem to be mobilizing more. Uh, but ultimately, it's just sort of a parlor game. Um, and, uh, you know, it just really wasn't clear to me one way or another what, what the outcome would be. Obviously, I knew con what the conventional wisdom was, you know, a red tsunami of some sort. And that was plausible to me. I just really couldn't say one way or another. So I just, even in that private conversation, I said, you know, look, I'm going to just refrain from uh, indulging in that kind of predictive, uh, predictive, like, odds making. And so the outcome that we apparently have now before us, uh, you know, it was, it, was, it was one that struck me as potentially plausible. Um, uh, I just think there was, a, there was a lot of uncertainty there. And uh, so the people, especially online, who kind of posture as having this somehow, this like secret insight that makes them 100% certain, that always strikes me as <clears throat> annoying. Uh, so rather than like do this whole song and dance where I'm trying to forecast election results, what I thought would be at least potentially useful for me to do is to uh, go to a bunch of events, uh, campaign events, uh, try as best I could to speak to some candidates for primarily the House of Representatives because, believe it or not, and you wouldn't really know this unless you've proactively sought to kind of engage in the process on this level, but, you know, candidates for Congress, uh, including even uh, sitting incumbent members of the House of Representatives, they're, unused, they're, they're fairly accessible. I mean, they're not, by and large, kind of closed off from the public. So if you were to go to a campaign event in the past couple of weeks for just, you know, pick sort of a random congressional district out of a hat, uh, even a very competitive one. So I went to, you know, I tried to go to competitive districts in those three states. Um, kind of pick one out of a hat, and there's a pretty good likelihood that you'll be able to just meet and talk to the candidate, which, you know, shouldn't be surprising because you'd think that would be sort of the, just the standard expectation for a, a, quote, you know, a democratic republic, especially on the level of the House of Representatives, which is supposed to be, um, you know, the most kind of grandly representative of the whole of the populace. But I do think a lot of people might be under the misconception 
that these candidates are somehow inaccessible. Um, and, you know, actually, come to think of it, this also even applies at times to the presidential election, at least the presidential primaries. Um, one reason why New Hampshire is so uh, jealously defensive of its status as, you know, the first in the nation primary, and the same goes for Iowa, although that's a caucus, so it's more party directed. Actually, in New Hampshire, there's a state law that mandates that New Hampshire go first in the country. Now, the, you know, the um, applicability of that law uh, is kind of sometimes in doubt because there's a whole complicated like morass of uh, protocols and laws and regulations and like party discretionary judgments that go into the formulation of the presidential primary calendars. Uh, but nonetheless, it actually is enshrined in state law. Uh, and, and the reason why they're so uh, def- protective of that first of the nation primary status is because it really is true that, you know, for as long as two years ahead of a presidential election, you could just go to New Hampshire and there will be presidential candidates like at a house party or at a little barbecue in somebody's backyard or at just some random kind of low-key, easily accessible event where you can just wander on up to that candidate and talk to them. I mean, it, it, this, is, this is true. I, mean, I remember I was at a, uh, a house party in, um, this was September or October of 2015 in New Hampshire with Scott Walker, then the governor of Wisconsin, who was a short-lived presidential candidate. And uh, it was amazing, or at least it was striking in the, in the sense that I, I'm not sure most people elsewhere in the country can really appreciate it. That, you know, you're just in this, you know, fairly intimate setting with a very high-profile political figure who's running for president. And it's, like, not particularly highly controlled. I mean, there's every, ample opportunity to just walk up to, to, to Walker and talk to him. I did it myself, you know, for, like, to do an interview briefly. I mean, he wasn't too thrilled about having to do that. But I did it. I was able to do it briefly. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it's just something that I think maybe is uh, not fully appreciated by much of the rest of the country. Because, like, if you're in California somewhere or even in Texas or whatever, um, you know, chances are you're not going to be spending a whole lot of time in New Hampshire, you know, going from event to event to kind of casually, uh, <laughs> you know, casually chatter with uh, presidential primary candidates. Uh, but you can do it, actually, for, for congressional events. Um, you know, so that's what I did. And, you know, for example, uh, this past Sunday, um, I was in northeastern Pennsylvania in a district that was very tightly competitive. And if you had asked me, if you had put a gun to my head, you know, on Sunday and asked, who do I think is going to win that race? Um, I would have probably guessed that the Republican challenger, the guy named Jim Bognett, was going to defeat the incumbent Democratic congressman, uh, Matt Cartwright. I mean, this was a uh, district that uh, voted substantially for Trump uh, in the presidential elections of 2020 and 2016, and yet was one of the very few districts that uh, simultaneously reelected a Democratic incumbent congressman. I mean, this is sort of like a legacy Democratic area. Parts of Scranton, uh, Wilkesbury, uh, Hazleton, and so forth, um, that trended very substantially to Trump, but nonetheless kind of maintained some remnants 
of that uh, old-fashioned, uh, you know, democratic, uh, downscale, white, union household type uh, uh, voter base. And so you had sort of more unusual results like those um, ticket-splitting results where both the incumbent Democrat and Trump were, were voted for. Um, so, yeah, I, mean, I probably would have thought, if I had to guess, that the incumbent Democrat would have been defeated. Uh, turns out he wasn't, or at least that's the current count. But nonetheless, I went to the, an event for this Republican uh, candidate, uh, again, named Jim Bognett, and it was, it was just in the basement of this little Italian restaurant. I don't even think it was an Italian restaurant. It was just kind of like an uh, American cuisine restaurant with like maybe a slight <laughs> emphasis on uh, Italian-seeming food. And, you know, it, was, um, it couldn't have been more accessible. I mean, there couldn't have been more of an opportunity to just chat face-to-face pretty much for as long as you wanted with this person who is, you know, the nominee of a major party and was at least at that point um, seemingly on course to become the next congressman from that district. Um, so I interviewed the guy. Uh, it was, and, um, you know, I put it in my most recent Substack because it was focused on uh, Ukraine policy. Um, that's where I thought I could be most helpful or most constructive in uh, taking advantage of these sort of uh, open-ended opportunities to engage with these political figures and and try to, as best I could, get a bit more specificity than they've offered thus far, by and large, on the question of whether, you know, they would effectively support the status quo in terms of Biden's policy in Ukraine, or if they actually did have a conviction to uh, change that status quo, because a lot of Republicans at least purported to have objections to the manner in which the Biden administration has been carrying out its uh, Ukraine policy. But, you know, my basic conclusion, if you read that Substack article from a couple days ago, is that um, these uh, uh, projections that if Republicans did win sizable uh, majorities in both the House and Senate, it's still still possible that they they could at least win slim majorities. Um, But however many seats they won, this idea that was in circulation, that was promoted by uh, Democrats, uh, including Biden himself, in the media and elsewhere, you know, basically sounding the alarm that Republicans were just going to capitulate to the forces of extremist authoritarianism and um, hand over Ukraine to Putin and just kind of abandon egregiously the uh, Ukraine in its hour of need, those progno- those, you know, those, those uh, phony prophecies were just that. They were, they were phony. They weren't grounded in anything really of substance um, based on what candidates by and large have said. Um, really, the narrative was woven around one fleeting remark that Kevin McCarthy made uh, about a month ago now, where he said that Ukraine would not get a blank check if Republicans win a majority in the House. Now, given that Republicans probably will win a majority in the House, albeit a smaller one than many had assumed, it is still worth taking that comment of McCarthy's seriously, at least in terms of trying to, you know, uh, ascertain the meaning of it. And the meaning of it as construed by Democrats and their media adjuncts in order to kind of confabulate a, a, a narrative was that that statement from McCarthy indicated that he, he all of a sudden in January of next year, once Republicans 
take control of Congress uh, are, go are going to immediately withdraw any quote-unquote aid to Ukraine. Now, that's just farcical. That's not even what uh, McCarthy himself communicated in that statement. If anything, all McCarthy was doing was sort of reiterating a very common talking point that you heard Republicans far and wide repeat, which is that because Ukraine for them was a bit of a politically awkward subject, um, a fair amount of them, meaning I'm talking about Republican candidates for, for the House of Representatives in particular, although you could find analogs to this in the Senate as well, but I focused on the House because it was sort of more uh, localized in terms of who you could talk to directly. Um, to the extent that they would disclaim willingness to give Ukraine a blank check, really that was just a kind of a, you know, a vacuous gesture to this idea that Republicans needed to do additional oversight over the Biden administration, right? So they had no objection by and large. You know, 90, I would say 95 to 99% of them had no objection on principle to the provision of military, quote-unquote, aid to Ukraine. And in fact, wanted to continue it, and in many cases, even wanted to increase it and more aggressively subsidize the Ukrainian war effort. I mean, look at Rick Scott, the guy who ran the Senate campaign, more or less, for the Senate Republicans. He has been very consistent all throughout this year, beginning in February, that he was critical of the Biden administration, not for being overly generous in you know, dumping billions upon billions of dollars into Ukraine, but that the Biden administration was not going anywhere near far enough. I mean, Rick Scott, including an interview with me personally over the summer, um, was criticizing the Biden administration for you know, not sending certain weapons packages or a certain caliber of weaponry fast enough. Um, so Rick Scott was just taking like the mo like a traditional sort of Republican hawkish position that you would associate with like the Reagan years or something. And actually that sensibility of Rick Scott's is still far more predominant than you would think if you listen to the prevailing media narratives where every time Marjorie Taylor Greene makes one fleeting comment, what the media does is they kind of wildly extrapolate that that's representative of the whole of the Republican caucus, as though they've never met anyone else in the Republican caucus beyond Marjorie Taylor Greene. Marjorie Taylor, Taylor Greene is, uh, is an outlier. She just is. Um, and Congress always has some number of outliers. Um, this idea, I mean, Ron Paul was a Republican for many years in the House of Representatives. I'm not, I'm not equating Marjorie Taylor Greene and Ron Paul. I'm only uh, likening them to one another in the sense that they're both, you know, outliers in various respects. And this idea that because, you know, Ron Paul, for example, was against the Iraq War, was against many, almost you know, virtually all uh, military uh, interventions while he was in office, except by the Afghanistan, the initial Afghanistan war. Ron Paul did support that, but that's an aside. Um, the, the idea that then you would, then, you would paint Ron Paul as generally representative of the Republican caucus is just nonsensical. And yet that's more or less what was being done with like a Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, and this, again, this is sort of con uh, predicated on a very, a really a flagrant misreading of Kevin McCarthy's no blank check comment. If you read the article that I did in Substack, you'll see that amusingly, in a dark, ironic way, um, Nancy Pelosi used that exact same phrase 
during the 2006 midterms when she was first installed to power as Speaker of the House. The 2006 midterms were dominated by, at least you know, in large part, uh, Democrats appearing to criticize the Iraq War and the Bush administration and pledging, or at least appearing to pledge, to uh, charter, to force Bush to charter a different course in Iraq. Um, on the strength of that platform, so to say, the Democrats act, you know, did win uh, you know, healthy majorities in Congress. And it turned out really to be a ruse, more or less. Um, even though Pelosi said that she would no longer abide giving Bush a blank check, it didn't translate into any legislative action that actually constrained Bush. In, in fact, it was almost the opposite. Bush, in January of 2007, right, so just a matter of days after the new Democratic Congress was sworn in, Bush announced what was then called the surge in Iraq, where you know, tens of thousands of additional U.S. troops were sent to Iraq on this counterinsurgency mission that was um, ingeniously crafted by David Petraeus. And uh, when all was said and done, 2007 was the deadliest year for U.S. forces in Iraq of the entire war. After Democrats won this midterm election where they were ostensibly pledging to rein in Bush on his war-making activities. Um, so not only didn't they do it in any meaningful sense, you know, by May of 2007, they, the Democratic-controlled Congress passed an enormous uh, supplemental war appropriations bill to fund the Iraq War, you know, with no real conditions attached to it. And you know, so what I was trying to explain to people is that the analogy to Republicans in 2022 could not be more blaringly obvious. Um, because what Republicans were doing was, ba you know, the, basically transmitting a set of talking points through the National Republican Congressional Committee and the equivalent campaign committee in the Senate for Republicans to all their candidates around the country to coordinate their talking points on, on Ukraine. Because when Ukraine would come up in any debate setting, in any uh, public appearance setting or an interview, uh, if you watched enough of these and subjected yourself to the tedium of, the, of them, which I did because, you know, I am willing to sacrifice on uh, behalf of my readers and listeners, uh, what you found unmistakably is that these Republican candidates pretty much everywhere in the country um, whenever they were asked about Ukraine, they would always r repair to the, pretty much the same answer, which is they would avoid the question by immediately pivoting to this kind of generalized grievance about Biden being weak on the world stage. They would bring up the Afghanistan withdrawal as sort of this like non sequitur um, that was supposed to demonstrate that because Biden was so weak, it therefore gave license to Putin to invade, and not just Putin, but emboldened, you know, President Xi in China, and on and on and on. It's just like a partisan talking point that was specifically tailored to enable these Republican candidates to more or less conceal their actual position on Ukraine war policy. Um, and 
you know, the pattern in Republicans reciting this talking point could not have been more blatant. And that was um, very manifestly a deliberate strategy organized at the highest levels of the Republican um, congressional campaign committees. Um, And so because they were so intent on keeping their actual views out of view of the public, uh, what they could do is, in certain instances, in certain races, um, and this would apply to like Don Bolduc in New Hampshire, who ended up losing by, I think, 11 points, even though there was hype about him potentially defeating Maggie uh, Hassan. Um, that didn't happen. Um, or uh, other candidates, you know, take your pick, pretty much all over the country uh, again. Um, what you saw them do starting in August, September, October of this year, is they uh, changed their tune a bit in a subtle way on on Ukraine, right? To the extent they would address it, they would make a pretty much a variation of Kevin McCarthy's comment, no blank check, right? So what Don Bolduc did, um, even though uh, earlier this year he um, he was giving TV interviews and appearing on Fox and appearing on these other stations, basically doing the Rick Scott routine where he's denouncing Biden for being too weak on Ukraine in particular in not providing the enough uh, armaments, not being vigorous enough in subsidizing the war effort, uh, basically, you know, uh, showing that, showing Putin that the United States was unwilling to actually commit fulsomely to winning the war on behalf of Ukraine. That was basically more uh, uh, Don Bolduc's position in the spring and early summer, but then by uh, fall, you heard Don Bolduc say, look, Biden doesn't have a strategy. He expressed reticence about continuing to fund the Ukraine war because he was doubtful that Biden actually uh, had put together an actionable strategy that would lead to victory. So it was more or less just a practical argument or a logistical argument against the Ukraine war funding. It wasn't anything that had to do with principle. It was just kind of this circumstantially advantageous line that Bolduc adopted that potentially gave voters the indication that he was uh, opposing Ukraine war funding, but actually didn't bind him to any particular position on that score. So you could see the political logic of it there, right? Because if there are portions of the electorate that are increasingly wary of the this U.S. intervention, then they might want a candidate to actually sound certain notes that at least suggest uh, some sort of oppositional uh, posture. Um, and a bunch of Republicans did that, but re- again, they did it almost uniformly by simply being ambiguous uh, or, or vague or nondescript in uh, their articulation of their views. Right? Um, so uh, I've been trying to counter the, this, I think, trumped-up nonsensical narrative that Republicans were going to somehow cut off aid all of a sudden to Ukraine um, if they were empowered because, you know, they're bloodthirsty authoritarians just like Putin. It just didn't make any sense. Um, I know a lot of Republicans themselves, especially the ones that I interact with online, they wanted to believe that Republicans actually um, intended to do this, uh, and that was also fanciful. Um, but, you know, so anyway, back to this uh, 
race in northeastern Pennsylvania. I, I chatted with this Republican congressional candidate, uh, very easily accessible. And then on election night, I went to his, uh, you know, little party thing, you know, the uh, election night victory party, or so he would have hoped, at a, this restaurant in uh, Hazleton, uh, Pennsylvania. And it was then that, you know, the results started to roll in. Didn't appear to be the wave that people had, had maybe anticipated. I actually tweeted myself on, I think it was Sunday, that, you know, my little mental shorthand for whether I would consider the election a wave or, you know, a red tsunami or whatever is that, and, you know, of course, which is not like a precisely defined term, but just in terms of how I would perceive it, um, it would be if Republicans won against Democratic incumbents in New Hampshire, uh, Colorado, and also Washington. You know, the, the uh, pundit oracle Chris Christie, who now says he's uh, contemplating running for president again, you know, he was on TV stating, basically as a factual matter, that he knew somehow, based on this secret info he had been made privy to, that this Republican candidate, uh, Joe O'Day, was going to defeat Michael Bennett in the Colorado Senate race. Uh, somehow Chris Christie knew that was going to happen. And, you know, <laughs> when uh, the chips fell, uh, Michael Bennett won, I think, by was it 12, 13 points, maybe even more. Um, so that was a nonsense statement by Christie, which is not surprising coming from him. Um, but anyway, so the, the, the votes were coming in, and I was told that there had been just this absurd situation in Luzerne County, which is where I was, in which this district um, contains significant parts of, where they literally did not have the supply of paper necessary. It's something like 42 polling sites throughout the county to simply allow people to cast votes. I mean, the thing that I, the first thing I said to people when this was being discussed at that event was, isn't the first thing you check when you're getting a polling site ready for election day, whether there's enough paper for people to just cast their votes? I mean, that's like the number one supply you need to have on hand, especially if there's a paper-based system, you know, which there is in this part of uh, Pennsylvania. I was told about one particular township um, called uh, Salem Township in Luzerne County where they started, this is a, a local reporter told me this, local TV reporter told me that when Salem Township started off the day voting on Tuesday at its one precinct, they had a grand total of 50, 50, five zero sheets of paper on hand for people to vote with. So in other words, they could accommodate 50 voters. And that was supposed to be enough for the entire day. So not surprisingly, they ran out by uh, approximately 9 a.m. And at that point, nobody could vote. So... You know, and this was the case, again, in something like 40, 45, maybe even more polling sites throughout the county. You know, there were, I, I was, was hearing stories about how um, poll workers and even just voters were volunteering to run around to, like, Sam's Club and purchase themselves computer paper, like printer paper, and bring it to the polling site so it could be used for people to vote with. And then, you know... The theater of the absurd element of this even intensified 
beyond that because they were told that it wasn't the, the paper wasn't the standardized paper that was required to actually be used in the voting machines. Um, so I mean, it's just uh, ludicrous. Um, and you know, if you read the local newspaper reports, members of the county council, because it's one of these arcane governmental bodies that preside over you know county level functions, which hardly anybody even knows what it is. I mean, like, do you know off the top of your head what county level government does in like Pennsylvania or pretty much anywhere? I mean, it's very shrouded in a weird bureaucratic mystery. Now they do tend to be in charge of election administration in many uh, places. Um, and so one of the county council members for Luzerne County was quoted as saying that uh, as, uh, uh, thousands of people could have been disenfranchised by this utterly ridiculous shortage of paper, shortage of paper supply at these polling sites. Now, a bunch of these polling places would have been Republican-leaning. Like I said earlier, Luzerne County had uh, been basically historically Democrat, but has shifted pretty rapidly over the past several cycles to be more Republican-leaning. There are still more Democratic-leaning parts of the district or county. Um, but <coughs> overall, Luzerne County is now Republican-leaning. Uh, so probably a disappointing proportionate percentage of the people who would have been disenfranchised by this ridiculous, you know, shambolic turn of events uh, would have been Republicans, right? So what happens in Pennsylvania? Well, you know, the gubernatorial candidate gets blown out for the Republicans uh, for reasons that, you know, if you're following the coverage, you don't really have to hear me rehearse. Uh, uh, Dr. Oz uh, uh, narrowly loses to uh, Fetterman, to basically, you know, a vegetable. I mean, sorry to be mean, but I mean, it really is staggering that anybody could have watched that debate and thought, thought to themselves, oh yeah, this person seems like he has the uh, cognitive fitness to perform a job like U.S. Senator. You know, not that I'm necessarily saying that it was a rat. I mean, if you're a, if you're a partisan Democrat and you want the, the U.S. Senate to be controlled by Democrats, then, you know, John Fetterman could have been, you know, a, uh, a ham sandwich and you would have voted for him because, like, it just it doesn't matter if he has the cognitive fitness. That's sort of secondary to your overall goal of just ensuring that Democrats control Congress. So, yeah, I get that logic, but still, I mean, it was just, you know, farcical to, to watch. Um, so anyway... The Democrats win the marquee races in Pennsylvania, right? So you're never going to hear about this really extreme instance of voter disenfranchisement in Luzerne County. It's just not going to get covered. Now, if Republicans had won the marquee races in Pennsylvania, so let's say governor and senator and a couple of house races. And, you know, there were evidence that in a Democratic-leaning county, let's say Philadelphia or even Montgomery County or Allegheny County or who, who, wherever, that thousands of thousands of likely Democratic voters were disenfranchised because of something as inane as no paper being available to just cast votes with. Um, I can guarantee you, without giving it a second thought, that it would have been blown up into an enormous story. 
Um, and in fact, it would have been cited as evidence for this sort of overarching theory that uh, democracy is under attack, that Republicans only win when they thwart democracy, and that, you know, uh, basically the, uh, the very core of our constitutional order is being destroyed from within uh, by these MAGA extremist Republicans who are stealing election victories. That's, that's pretty much what the narrative would have been, and there would have been uh, you know, hordes of national media on the ground here where I am right now, because I'm actually still in Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania, because I've been trying to look into this story. Because it just strikes me as, again, uh, crazy. Um, you know, this would have been great. There would have been a, an enormous national uproar. Uh, but because the marquee races were won by Democrats, uh, because the whole, you know, democracy is on the ballot thing, is no longer operative, it's just going to get ignored. So, I mean, what does that tell you? For one, obviously it tells you which something which should have been obvious to really anyone who's at all a uh, considered conscientious observer of this sort of political rhetoric, that it's 100% contingent on partisan outcome, right? Democrats became so melodramatic and so uh, self-aggrandizing about this whole idea of democracy is on the line and that everybody needs to vote because if a democratic outcome is uh, is the result that we don't like, meaning that if Republicans win, that means democracy is destroyed and democracy can only be preserved if our preferred democratic outcome takes place, which is that Democrats win. I mean, it's just, it was, it was just a way, I think, by and large to dramatize and like glorify and uh, make more sort of vividly exciting this idea of voting for Democrats. And, you know, maybe around the margins it was an effective tactic. I don't know. Uh, I can't discount that possibility. Uh, but what you can glean from the actual practical, practical implications of that rhetoric is that it's totally politically contingent. Otherwise, they'd be up in arms about this Luzerne County thing. And they're not. They're just ignoring it. And they're celebrating that they, uh, you know, they changed that uh, Senate seat in Pennsylvania from Democrat to Republican. And, you know, therefore, you know, all is forgiven. Uh, you know, it's, it, it couldn't be more brazen. Um, but, you know, I, I'm still here, like I mentioned in, in Wilkesbury, because, I don't know, I just would like to hear more information about how it is that such a obvious thing that would have been done by any even remotely competent election administrator was not done and uh, therefore uh, potentially thousands of people were turned away from the polls because of no paper. Um, so, you know, today I went to the ele election administration uh, building in, in downtown Wilkesbury where they're supposed to be counting votes because Although many people were turned away, uh, what they had to scramble to do on election day with the paper being uh, having run out, allegedly, um, is they had to get uh, like their emergency stockpile of provisional ballots out and uh, have people vote by provisional ballot. And they also extended the voting time from uh, 8 p.m. to 10 p.m., which I'm told is unprecedented. Um, so anyway, they have this 
unusual number now of provisional ballots that need to be counted by hand and need to be examined and cross-checked um, because people had to vote provisionally because they couldn't vote normally, right? And so it ta- it's a more involved process to count those provisional ballots. And so you'd think that, you know, given the embarrassment and the, you know, unacceptability of what happened with the voting process in Luzerne County on Tuesday, they'd be, they really have the fire beneath them to make sure that they're more strenuous than ever ensuring like the expeditious count of these provisional ballots, right? Uh, really working overtime to get a reliable, verifiable count finalized and, um, you know, put to rest any suspicions of maybe some impropriety or foul play. Uh, so I go to the, this administrative building in uh, downtown Wilkesbury this afternoon. I think it was, I don't know, uh, 3 o'clock, 3.30, something like that. You know, middle of the workday, Thursday. And um, the place where, in theory, the provisional ballots would be counted, which is, is accessible to the public, I mean, another thing maybe people don't realize is that you can, you're supposed to be able to just walk into these voting, vote counting sites and just observe for yourself the uh, votes being counted. You know, they're not like secret chambers that somehow only you can get access to if you're some, you know, well-connected official to like the local political party or, you know, the county government structure or whatever. No, you're supposed to just be able to walk in. I did it myself. Um, in 2020, uh, when, after the presidential election when I was in Atlanta, Georgia, um, you know, which was obviously a big bone of contention with people who were theorizing election fraud. You know, I don't know. I was, uh, one reason I was wary of some of those claims was because I physically was able to just myself go into that State Farm Arena in Atlanta where the Atlanta Hawks play and watch the, voting, the uh, vote tabulation happening and there was no barrier or there was nobody – you know, blocking my view. It was pretty open and, and transparent, which is in a, in a way sort of kind of reassuring. I'm not saying there was absolutely uh, 100% zero wrongdoing whatsoever. Um, but, you know, it was pretty transparent and open to the public. But that's sort of, again, another uh, tangent, which I'm sometimes uh, prone to go on. Um, I, I go to this administration building today to to kind of, you know, feel things out, maybe talk to people, watch the vote counting. And it's just the, the room where it would be happening is chained shut with a padlock. And it's just like, where is the, ur- and there was no, nothing happening. There was nobody in there. So where's the sense of urgency? I mean, why aren't, and here's why there, you think in theory there ought to be an even greater sense of urgency. Even this was, if this, this particular congressional race, which encompasses Luzerne County, even if it was, you know, non-competitive, even if it had no real significant wider meaning, um, even if, you know, there were no real, you know, wider stakes associated with it, you would still think that, you know, just as a matter of, I don't know, uh, honor, they would want to really uh, double down on the uh, voting, uh, vote counting process. Um, you, you think that would just be kind of intuitive for them to want to do? I'm talking about you know the uh, these local county boards. The, uh, it's called the election bureau. There's a county manager who's involved. I mean, it's all kind of 
a mess in terms of who's actually in charge of anything, which is one of the problems bureaucratically because there's nobody really to hold responsible um, when something goes haywire like it did on Tuesday. Um, but this particular congressional race, you know, Jim Bogdan and Matt Cartwright are only separated by a couple thousand votes. Now, the race apparently has been called for Cartwright. So, you know, maybe Cartwright wins regardless of whatever happens in Luzerne County, but it's got a giant asterisk at the very least. And, um, you know, control of the House of Representatives is coming down to a pretty slim margin. I mean, if, if Republicans do ultimately take control, which I think is probably likely at this point, it's, it's going to be by not that many seats. So, you know, whether a Democrat or a Republican occupies this particular House seat in Pennsylvania, you know, could make a pretty big difference nationally. Uh, and yet, you know, you go, uh, you go to this location where votes are supposed to be counted on, you know, the afternoon, two days after an election that was marred by this just outlandish incompetence bordering potentially on foul play. I don't know. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me, but I just don't know. But, you know, it's, it's that extreme that you can't rule out the possibility. Uh, you go there and there's everybody's just totally relaxed and, you know, it's the farthest thing from any sense of urgency. I mean, it's just very strange. And uh, it goes to show you that if people are suspicious about different aspects of the American uh, election administration regime, which is so diffuse and so uh, hyper-localized and so uh, ambiguous in terms of who's actually calling the shots or who's in charge of what decision. Um, it's really hard to blame people uh, in some cases. Now, I'm not saying that in every case it's warranted to just make far-fetched allegations about some sort of concerted you know, organized election fraud scheme. I think a lot of those claims tend to be overwrought, but it's almost even worse what happened in Luzerne County, as far as I can tell, because it's difficult to even really get a grip on who is responsible for the wrongdoing. I mean, is, is this pretty flagrant wrongdoing? So you're kind of left in this weird uh ambiguous no man's land where you can't even figure out if it was active malfeasance or it was just such utterly ludicrous incompetence that it's unbelievable. Um, you're, you just have, you're only left to speculate. Um, and you can't get a firm answer from anybody about what the explanation is. So to, to me, in a way, that's almost even more disturbing or more uh, disconcerting than it would be if there was like one of these grandiose uh, conspiracy election fraud schemes that a lot of people on the internet seem to always think are underway. Um, this is more banal, maybe, and more kind of and less exciting, but um, in a sense, even more uh, uh, engenders even more uh, distrust or lack of uh, confidence in the, the system as it stands. Um, so you know, I was told that there's going to be counting of votes uh, tomorrow afternoon at this location, and so I'm going to go back there. I mean, I'm, I extended my stay, weirdly, in uh, Wilkes-Barre just because I, I found this so, uh, uh, you know, perversely fascinating. So, uh, 
you know, I'll let you know. I guess if I find anything of note, and uh, I think I'm going to write something about it at some point soon. Uh, but yeah, we shall see. And so I do think I, I, see I have a, uh, a caller here. So uh, let's go to Amia. Hello, Amia. Hi, Michael. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can. Okay. Great. Uh, yeah, first time calling in, uh, but I've been listening to you for a while. Um, actually, I'm happy that you're in Luzerne County because I actually grew up just south of there. So. Um, oh yeah. Which county was that? Which county was that? Uh, Lehigh County. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's like oh, two, okay, yeah. two counties down. Allentown area. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I wanted to take it a little bit in a different direction. Um, you're talking about the sort of double standard when it comes to, um, you know, election fraud or democracy in danger, or whatever the narrative might be. Um, but I was kind of thinking of more of what the consequences might be of this election, right? Because mm-hmm. um, I, I generally talk to people who are, you know, skewed, uh, they skew more liberal, mostly academics, um, and you know. You have my sympathies. Are... You have my sympathies. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Hey, uh, hey, Amia, uh, hey, I'm, I'm hearing my voice on um, like a feedback. Um, are you listening through like a speaker or something? Speaker or something? Or some way to like yeah, adjust so, the volume? Sorry yeah. about volume? that. Yeah, yeah, maybe maybe let me adjust the volume because I'm okay outside okay. here. So yeah, is it better? Um. um no, I still hear my voice, no, but it's okay. I'll just, uh, I'll shut up. And then once I'm speaking, just mute yourself. Uh, and then, okay. you know, you can unmute, like, if you want to speak again. So go ahead. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Sorry about that. No problem. Um, you can hear me fine though, right? Yep. yep. Oh, you know what? It's actually okay. better now. So don't worry about it. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I turned the volume down a bit. So, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, but basically I wanted to kind of think, uh, you know, Uh, gauge your thoughts on the consequences as well, because, uh, you know, again, I'm surrounded by people who are right now fretting, you know, we could have controlled the house, uh, you know, if things had gone slightly differently. And I I guess that's a little bit up in the air in terms of how the control will go. Um, But regardless of that, you know, you know, I'm, I'm finding it a little bit hard to figure out why I should have a very strong opinion here because the way I see it, at least on the federal level, um, I don't see a ton of change, you know, regardless of who controls Congress, you know, one or two seats this way or the other. Um, you know, state and local elections, I think it's a little bit different depending on which jurisdiction you're in. You know, there might be abortion initiatives on the ballot and such. Um, but at least at the federal level, um, I don't see a ton of difference. And the reason for that, I think, is twofold. Uh, Number one, there are a lot of issues where, um, first of all, there is no appreciable difference between the Democrats or the Republicans. So one of these is the Ukraine policy, which I guess you've talked about quite a a bit. And um, at least in the near future, I see Zelensky getting blank checks, regardless of which party is in power, because I think there's a bipartisan consensus there. Yeah. And... uh, you know, then then you have other issues uh, where I think the problems are more deep seated, right? They're more structural problems. Uh, maybe things like supply chains, right, which affect some of the price increases. Um, and those are things where I don't think either party can really do anything in the immediate future, right? Um, those have right. been kind of long in the making. So I guess tell me why I should, you know. Uh, loose 
sleep over the election. I guess that's <laughs> what I'm trying to say. Um, well, by, I mean, by the way, another example, another example, to, uh, sorry, just, just one more thing. Yeah. For, for number one, right. So I asked a friend of mine who's maybe a bit less partisan. Um, and, uh, you know, he pointed to the action on semiconductors or, you know, the, uh, infrastructure bill, but I think those examples were also ones where there was bipartisan support, right? So, um, seems like those would have passed regardless of whether, you know, the house flipped a couple seats one way or another. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, so a couple of things. And um, if you don't mind me, if you could just mute yourself while I'm responding, because there is a bit of feedback still. Um, yeah, no problem. Yep. Thanks. Um, so a couple of things, you know, the Democrats in the House after the 2020 election, in which the Republicans actually gained a few seats, which is sort of incongruous with the overall outcome where, you know, obviously Trump was not reelected, uh, but nonetheless, Republicans did gain uh, a handful of seats in the House and narrowed the Democratic uh, majority. Uh, but as slim as a Democratic majority has been for the past two years, I think they only have a majority of about seven, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, they have, you know, nonetheless, been able to pass through, uh, usually on a, by, on a partisan basis, at least in terms of the marquee pieces of legislation, you know, like the, the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, um, which was like basically the culmination of all this legislative maneuvering around some sort of build back better plan. You know, that culminated in the, uh, you know, cheekily titled Inflation Reduction Act in August. And that was, uh, that was passed through the House on a more or less party line vote. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it's true that who, which party controls the Congress uh, did, did dictate whether that huge piece of domestic spending legislation would have been able to get through. And even for pieces of legislation that were more bipartisan in nature, ultimately, in terms of you know, attracting a fair number of Republican votes, um, yeah, while in theory a uh, Republican-controlled House and or Senate might have also put through a, an infrastructure bill. You know, in practice, Republicans don't tend to prioritize that. Um, you know, they're, especially if they're in opposition to a, a president of the opposite party, I think history shows that they're not really um, chomping at the bit to initiate new spending initiatives, right? Um, or to add to the uh, overall expenditure that had been you know, implemented by the Democratic president, right? So they're, they're probably going to be almost entirely focused on restraining spending, um, on especially social programs or other kinds of domestic initiatives. So... Uh, even though something like the like the infrastructure bill did end up getting a decent amount of bipartisan support in the Senate anyway, um, the origination of that act, I think, was pretty clearly contingent on the Democrats controlling the House. Because remember, Trump at least nominally said for almost his entire presidency that he wanted to do an infrastructure bill. 
I mean, he even talked about, th- about that before entering office. He was saying, well, look, this is where we can find common ground with the Democrats. But what happened in practice? Well, I mean, Republicans reverted to their usual ways, which is that they prioritized uh, tax cuts and they prioritized, you know, deregulation and, um, you know, rescinding social welfare programs, namely Obamacare, which they didn't succeed in doing. But they spent, you know, months of Trump's first term, uh, year in office, you know, burning through their political capital in an ill-fated attempt to do that. So I do think there are, you know, on a domestic level, in terms of domestic policy, you know, there are some appreciable differences in who controls the Congress. I don't think that any of it has to do with, like, democracy being obliterated or, you know, fascism seizing control over the reins of the state and instituting some kind of nightmarish tyranny. I think that's just, you know, cheap uh, rhetoric to kind of, uh, you know, again, dramatize the stakes of Democrats controlling the Congress versus Republicans. Um, but, you know, still, on a policy level, there are some non-trivial differences in who controls the Congress. But the reason why I, I tend to more focus on foreign policy is because in that domain, the insignificance of who controls Congress is blaringly apparent. And I think um, the re- there's not as much emphasis on that realm of policy because it kind of runs counter to this idea that there are such existential stakes uh, in who runs, you know, the House of Representatives, for example, um, and that, you know, the gulf between Republicans and Democrats is like so vast and so seismically important that we all have to pretend like democracy itself is on the line anytime there's an election every two years now. Um, because, you know, as you pointed out, again, in practice, there wouldn't have been any difference at all, really, uh, on Ukraine based on who wins the House or the Senate. Um, I think, you know, as I mentioned earlier, Republicans did kind of couch their rhetoric around Ukraine in this strategically ambiguous way to maybe give the vague impression to certain voters that they might seek to compel Biden to alter the policy. But in terms of their actual policy commitments of the, their own, no, there was very little to no indication that they were going to do anything of substance on that front. Um, but And because there's such negligible difference between Republicans and Democrats in such a crucial policy area like Ukraine, um, which, you know, we're told by the president himself still has us on the verge of some sort of imminent nuclear Armageddon. Um, the, the fact that you can't actually vote as a citizen who's electing the composite parts of the national legislature, you can't actually vote to really meaningfully affect that policy. Again, I think that's just totally counter to this whole notion that has been feverishly promoted for months, I mean, even going back to 2016, that that the stakes of who has partisan control of Congress or the presidency are so unbelievably high that we all have to be in like a constant fit of hysteria over it. Well, I mean, if that were the case, then how is it that there's such, you know, suspicious agreement between the parties on 
these most kind of elemental functions of the state. Uh, and it's not just Ukraine, right? I mean, there's, this, there's a total bipartisan convergence around uh, Taiwan as well, uh, where you know, the administration has us barreling toward a multi-front nuclear confrontation posture with at least two powers, Russia and China, um, and maybe even Iran or North Korea, that are, um, you know, able to reciprocate with their own nuclear brinksmanship, hence Biden's warning about nuclear Armageddon. Um, and this is all being done on the, a thoroughly bipartisan basis. Uh, you know, I, I pointed out that um, on Twitter earlier today that on election day, so on Tuesday, there was a meeting convened at the Pentagon with all the top weapons manufacturers. So Northrop Grumman, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, you know, uh, General Dynamics, the whole kit and caboodle, where the agenda item was to accelerate and expand domestic weapons production and to increase dramatically industrial capacity of the defense sector so as to meet the long-term demands for furnishing armaments and equipment to Ukraine um, as basically an indefinite military commitment with Taiwan thrown on top of it. So these are the actual tangible actions being undertaken right now in terms of like the orientation of the government writ large to um, uh, sort of orient itself toward this new paradigm of foreign policy where you know they're they're reverting to the height of the cold war days in terms of stuff like procurement of contracts for the pentagon um they're instituting the allowance of no bid contracts for weapons producers to uh furnish arms to ukraine and replenish american stockpiles on an expedited schedule uh, and there's, there's all these incremental measures like this that happen largely under the radar because they're not given that much attention. They're almost 100% bipartisan. And, you know, they just don't comport whatsoever with this nonsense hyperbole that we're all constantly inundated with about how, you know, if Mitch McConnell controls the Senate versus Chuck Schumer, that you know, democracy hangs in the balance between that choice. I mean, it's just farcical. Now, again... Is there a real difference in certain respects in terms of who controls the Congress? Yeah. I mean, there would not have been this thing, the Inflation Reduction Act, with all the, like, the, you know, green energy spending and yada, yada, yada. That would not have happened if Republicans controlled the Congress, right? But it nonetheless is worth noting that in this vast other domain of American policymaking that is, you know, the most kind of acute domain in which the U.S. actually has the most decisive power as the world's leading military hegemon, um, it, it really does not matter all that much whatsoever who, what party uh, is in control of these uh, branches of government. So, I mean, that's the thing I tend to want to focus on and impart to people and sort of elucidate with reporting if, I so, if I'm able, um, because otherwise, you know, people drink the Kool-Aid of this, you know, uh, 
catastrophizing democracy on the ballot rhetoric. Um, And, you know, also Republicans do the same thing or a variation of it when they say, you know, if Democrats win, it's like a communist tyranny. So, yeah, anyway, that's... uh, that's my answer. I don't know if that addresses the uh, thrust of your question. Yeah, but, I think yeah. I think you raised some good points there, and I, you know there is a distinction between the Senate vote and the House vote. So I think I think uh, you raised some valid points there, and you know there were a couple of pieces of legislation that went through. Um, I guess people generally say that the first two years of the presidency are are the most eventful. So I guess there's some question of like what additional um, action happens from here on out, but. Um, I, I will say though, uh, despite my um, reservations about you know just how important the federal elections are here, um, I, I do find the elections kind of interesting from a from a I guess data analysis point of view in the sense that you have all these kind of regional differences, right? Where yeah. uh, you know Florida was you know was looking much like a red state now. And on the other hand, you have the Midwest where Democrats, you know, largely overperformed, um, similar in Pennsylvania. But then you had New York, which was kind of uh, looked a bit better for Republicans. Um, so, so I think that's kind of interesting. And it seems like everyone is eager to come out with their explanation of what happened. And, you know, it was abortion that caused this to go bad for the Republicans or it was Trump or the candidate quality. But I think... Probably the answer is more complex, and we don't know yet. Uh, that's kind of my view on it. And uh, one one final point on on Trump, right? I think people are sort of uh, viewing the results of this election as disastrous for Trump in 2024, and that strikes me as a somewhat premature assumption um, because I, you know, I think he does have that strong floor um and you know one one point that i think a lot of people are missing um, which i actually pointed out on twitter is that you know this narrative that this 2024 field is wide open and that trump is not inevitable uh might make it more likely that additional candidates jump into the race other than just ron DeSantis. and i would argue that the uh the best chance of defeating Trump in the Republican primary is if you have a two-way race. Um, so I think if it becomes a, a multi, multi-way multi race, uh, that actually kind of helps Trump. Um, that's sort of my thought on that. Yeah, I mean, clearly there's, there's like a wish-casting narrative that you see now, particularly in the conservative punditocracy, where... Although many of them, and this is sort of a funny dynamic that I've observed now for a while, at least in Trump's post-presidency, while many of these conservative, you know, magazine types and podcasters and, you know, you know the kind of milieu I'm talking about in the media world, um, while many of them uh, eventually sort of accommodated themselves to Trump during his presidency and even some, in some cases became like stalwart defenders of him, you know that at this juncture – they really desperately want to not have to saddle themselves with Trump any longer. Like they, don't, they do not want Trump to be the Republican nominee in 2024. They want to you know, rid themselves of the baggage of Trump. They don't want to deal with the drama. Um, they want just you know, a uh, more, I guess, conventional Republican who has absorbed, at least as they see it, some of the lessons of Trump's ascendance, but is more uh, 
put together, is more competent, is more kind of shrewd and organizationally adept. And, you know, obviously, DeSantis sort of represents that model of what they'd like to see. Um, so they're trying to basically wish cast Trump out of contention by blaming him for Republicans seeming to have underperformed. Now, I mean, it is the case that at least in several of these races, um, Trump really was the decisive factor in why a certain candidate got the nomination, right? Um, Oz in uh, Pennsylvania, I mean, if Trump hadn't endorsed Oz, then Oz would not be the nominee in all likelihood. Um, uh, Blake Masters in Arizona, um, very unlikely that he would have gotten the nomination if not for Trump. In fact, I mean, it's probable that uh, if Trump hadn't been on his post-2020 crusade against uh, Republican state officials who he felt wronged him, uh, Doug Ducey, the popular incumbent governor of Arizona, might have run for Senate and might have won. Um, Actually, I'm almost certain that he would have won. Um, uh, But uh, because of, you know, this looming specter of Trump, chose not to do so. Same might have even been the case for actually Chris Sununu in New Hampshire, who ended up running for re-election as governor, uh, but ha- was being you know, courted assiduously by Mitch McConnell and other Republicans to run for Senate against Maggie Hassan. Um, and, you know, given, given the overwhelming margin that Sununu uh, won re-election by, it's very plausible that he would have won the Senate race. Instead, you know, in New Hampshire, they got stuck with this guy, you know, pretty wacky uh, guy, uh, General Boltick, who uh, was ultimately wiped out. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's definitely uh, reasonable grounds on, on which to blame Trump for certain of these state-based uh, electoral failures for Republicans. But this is really, that's really, it's really a pundit argument, right? I mean, it's really sort of a political wonk, operative, media person type discussion that's not going to have... I don't think, I mean, and who knows? Who can predict the future? But I strongly doubt that a plurality of Republican voters would somehow, you know, switch their allegiance to Trump from Trump to somebody else in like a theoretical primary because they don't think that Trump exercised excessively prudent ju- uh, or uh, adequately prudent judgment in determining his primary endorsements in the Senate race. I mean, that's just like not how people think. Um, Trump, you know, for better or worse, <laughs> is such an enormously outsized personality that he's the, like the only people, person a lot of people know is a Republican that they can vote for. Like, I mean, even just, you know, totally anecdotal, but I just talked to a lady on election day here in Northeastern, uh, here in uh, Wilkesbury. You know, I just asked, you know, was just casually chatting and asking if she was going to vote. And she said, no, nah, she doesn't really understand politics, so she's not going to vote. But, you know, if she did vote, she would, probably would vote for Trump, um, meaning that she thought that Trump was some, in some sense, like maybe indirectly or directly on the ballot today, uh, or this cycle, rather. And, um, you know, and she wanted to vote for, she would consider voting for Trump. Um, meaning, or the only politician that she could consider voting for, despite being ignorant of politics by her own admission, was Trump, right? Um, and, like, that type of person, that, like, somewhat inactive voter who is only peripherally aware of politics but can be, can be activated uh, when there's enough of an outsized uh, influence sort of impinging on them, you know, that 
person's much more likely to be activated by Trump than DeSantis. Like, I mean, I, I just don't think there's really there's a whole lot of good reason to suppose that like a DeSantis is stands a better chance of winning, you know, uh, Michigan or Wisconsin than, than Trump. I mean, for one thing, Trump won those states already once. Came reasonably close in um, 2020. And, uh, you know, DeSantis just does not have the same kind of star power where he can uh, generate excitement and support among these relatively disengaged portions of the electorate that Trump, through a combination of his celebrity power and his sort of uh, heterodox uh, platform in 2016 and his, like, media dominance... He, he wasn't able to activate, hence why, you know, the county I'm in right now, Luzerne, which was historically Democratic, you know, shifted Republican for the, pretty much the first time. So, um, Just to clarify, yeah. though, I, I think you're talking about the general election here, though, right? Yeah, um, no, I'm, 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 to, well, I'm talking, about, I'm talking yeah. about, like, the logic that's going to be employed to assess which Republican candidate is best positioned He's to win electable. a general election. Right, so that, I mean, that's, a, that, that's, that's what would be debated in a primary, yeah. right? Yeah, um, I, I do think so a lot I, of I mean, I don't think, um, have that pundit brain on. Yeah, yeah well, I mean, it was, it was cro- there was chronic pundit brain in the 2020 Democratic primary. I mean, I was pulling my own hair out because every, every, every uh, voter that I spoke to in New Hampshire, you know, ahead of that primary was like, was unable, not every, I'm exaggerating, but there were so many voters that I spoke to in New Hampshire um, ahead of the Democratic primary, who were almost unable to articulate what their own personal preference was, like on the substance, which candidate did they most want to see get the nomination? Like you almost couldn't extract that answer from them because they would be chronically doing this whole like pundit calculus about who could best um, take on Trump or who would stand the best chance of winning against Trump, right? Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there's going to be a variation of that in a forthcoming Republican primary. I don't know that Trump would clear the field so much. Um, but, you know, I also – I'm not sold on DeSantis running. Um, you know, there was a report mm-hmm. last week in Vanity Fair, take it or leave it. Um, but, you know, they're not just going to make stuff up where they're getting they – where it was reported that, you know, uh, DeSantis has told different donors that if Trump does run, he doesn't see it as worth, worth it or worthwhile uh, in terms of his own political future to, like, lock himself into an all-out vicious – Brawl with Donald Trump and split the Republican Party for you know a year and a half or something, uh, which you know I think makes sense. At the same time, you know, could see you could see the argument for why you know if there's a window of opportunity, which DeSantis may well have right now, you kind of just have to uh, seize it come what may. I mean, I think you know there there are arguments well, both ways, well, I think that- but but whether or not DeSantis runs, I mean, I, I think there there will, there will be other Republicans who run. They probably won't be able to really meaningfully challenge Trump, but they will run. So I don't, I don't think the field will be 100% clear, cleared. Um, right. But, you know, there's going to be pun- there's going to be some Republican grousing, especially in the elite kind of uh, stratum of the party, where they're going to go, they're going to really um, work hard to recruit a serious challenger to Trump. They're going to be mindful of the lessons of 2016 when, you know, the excess of candidates sort of split the field and allowed Trump to coast in on the plurality. I mean, there's going to be some effort along those lines to not just let Trump get coronated. I don't know. It seems far-fetched to me that that could be successful. Um, but, you know, 
Hard to say. I mean, that's why uh, I'm not in the business of predicting stuff because six months from now, you know, dynamics could have changed and uh, stuff could be happening that we couldn't have uh, foreseen at this point. Yeah, I, I would generally agree that it's it's not entirely clear that Ron DeSantis is running. Um, you know, the thing that was pointed out to me as a counter argument is that, you know, after 2026, I think he can't run for a third term in Florida due to their regulations. Um, you know, so he'll be sort of out of the limelight and it's hard to know whether he'll have that same sort of national attention and appeal. And I think, you know, one of the big reasons that DeSantis got propelled into the national conversation is that, uh, you know, a lot of Democrats would go after him and, and sort of attack him, right? You know, he did this in Florida, he did that. And I think that kind of helps him among Republicans. Um, I know it's it's unclear whether that window will be there, you know, once he has stepped down from his position in the governor's mansion. Um, but on the other hand, yeah, I mean, it's not clear that getting in this vicious fight helps him either. So I think he's sort of in a tough position. Yeah, I mean, um, I, but yeah, I think like if, if I yeah. had to like if I, if I had to advise him on what is the most politically opportune thing for him to do, which obviously I'm not. But if I if I were doing that, I'd be a bit conflicted. I think if I gave it enough thought, I could potentially see myself landing on just telling him to run and deal with the fallout. Because, you know, mm -hmm. as brutal as a primary would be against Trump, I mean, look at who Trump was most brutally in conflict with in 2016. Ted Cruz, right? Marco Rubio. Yeah. I mean, these, pe these are not people who have lingering conflict with Trump now. I mean, uh, Trump was just campaigning with Rubio in Florida with, you know, DeSantis conspicuously absent. Um, so, I mean, a lot of that uh, vitriol really, uh, you know, gets swept under the rug pretty quickly. You know, by 2018, Trump was campaigning with uh, Cruz in Texas for the Senate race against, you know, Beto O'Rourke. I mean, the, the politicians have an amazing ability to at least act like, you know, they're... Uh, they're, they're, they're turning over a new leaf and then they don't care about like the, the brutal things they said about one another like a year and a half before. Um, so, you know, uh, if, if DeSantis were to win, uh, were to run rather, and let's say he loses to Trump, you know, by, you know, like 60, 40 or something in terms of delegate count, who knows exactly what it would be. Uh, it would still turn DeSantis into an even more household name. It would make him like the heir apparent uh, for a, a forthcoming nomination, it would, you know, even further expand his like donor base, his base of media supporters. Um, it would just, it would just in, uh, vastly increase his leverage. Like you know, in 1976, Ronald Reagan challenged Jimmy Carter, right? <laughs> um, uh, not Jimmy Carter, sorry, Gerald Ford in the Republican primaries, and it was very close. Uh, pretty much came to the, down to the convention, you know, and, uh, you know, Reagan uh, eventually bowed out, endorsed Gerald Ford, and then Reagan was more or less coronated to, to be the nominee for the Republicans in 1980. Um, and, you know, I could see some, like, version of that happening now with DeSantis and Trump, but then again, you know, if, if you could also see it going in a different direction where, you know, there is... 
he, the party really is split in a way that's electorally disadvantageous, and it doesn't redound to DeSantis' benefit. So I think it, it's very unclear what the most prudent thing would be to do politically. Um, I'm honestly not sure. I, I think Trump is just such an outsized person, person, uh, personality and force on the Republican primary electorate in particular that it's going to be a major uphill battle to... Uh, to uh, chip away at his lead, even if you're a DeSantis who's, you know, yeah. pretty much the darling of, like, the Republican intelligentsia. Right. Yeah, I generally agree with that. Um, just final note, um, since you mentioned Beto, um, I, I was telling some friends, basically, I think the ABCs of perennial losing candidates that Democrats need to run away from if they actually want to win is uh, A for Abrams, B for Beto, Beto and uh, C for Charlie Crist. Yeah, I was just going to say. I mean, Charlie Crist is like yeah. the equivalent of a damp rag for his, you know, as an electoral candidate. I mean, people have been saying, which is funny and true, that he's the first uh, candidate, I think, in the history of Florida. Maybe I don't. Maybe not nationwide, but at least in Florida, to have lost statewide as a Democrat, an independent, and a Republican. <laughs> um, so, you know. Um, I mean, it was a foregone conclusion that the Santos would beat Charlie Chris. I mean, Charlie Chris is almost nominated as a joke candidate. Uh, so, I mean, it would it, it would be interesting to see uh, Chris, um, or sorry, DeSantis have uh, you know run some uh, have to contest an election where the competition's a bit stiffer. You know, one reason why Chris Christie uh, was hyped as a potential presidential candidate as early as 2012 and actually passed it up and then ran in. 2016, and then you know, basically just got swamped by Trump. But the reason why he was hyped so early was because he uh, he defeated an incumbent Democratic governor, John Corzine. This is in 2009, right? And you know, DeSantis really hasn't done hasn't achieved an electoral feat along those lines yet. Um, not that the 2018 election wasn't you know a worthy uh, electoral accomplishment, um, you know, and especially in a Democratic leaning sort of wave type year. Um, but you know, it's, um, it certainly doesn't hold a candle to Trump winning the presidency in 2016. All, uh, this is all just to say, I think a, bun- a lot of this, uh, DeSantis hype is kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, conservative elites are displacing their kind of, uh, internalized consternation around being so tethered to Trump, um, and, uh, kind of, crafting arguments that are like uh, post hoc uh, based on this idea that they don't want, I mean, with the starting point being they don't want to deal with Trump any longer. So they're just going to fashion whatever arguments sort of advance that goal. And uh, one of the arguments now involves um, boosting DeSantis as the, uh, you know, singularly appealing alternative where, you know, I, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sold on DeSantis necessarily having a better chance of winning the presidency than Trump, which I think people are going to make that argument for. But anyway, I'm sort of repeating myself. You sort of get the idea. It's just, um, at the very least, it'll be entertaining because, um, I mean, I just think it's funny that 
I mean, Trump, Trump attacking DeSantis or even just like kind of making fun of him. Not, he hasn't even gone hard at him yet, really. He just did that one little funny nickname, Ron DeSanctimonious, which I, I admit I chuckled <laughs> at. Even, even that, which is kind of, you know, minor league stuff thus far. Even that, you just know that that really cuts to the heart of so many conservatives, uh, conservative elites in particular, who like, that's the last thing they want to, for there to be that kind of like dissension between two of the, uh, you know, marquee uh, figures of the Republican Party. It's just, it's just the antithesis of what they would like to happen. Because, um, you know, a lot of these Republican professionals, what they want most of all is to put on a united front against uh, Democrats. It's just basically just a sh- sheer partisan motive. I mean, Reagan's, you know, famous, what was it, like 11th commandment was thou shalt not ta- attack a fellow Republican. Um, you know, that's, that's the mantra that they kind of professionally tend to uh, abide by as, as, mu- as much as possible. And so for, you know, the two most, you know, I guess you could say influential Republicans in the country, uh, DeSantis and, and Trump, to be in like a uh, war of words even at this point, it's just like, you know, it just drives them crazy, which I have to admit I find amusing. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. Anyway, I got to run my... Yeah, all right. Thanks to me. I'm sorry I uh, ran so much, but I guess that's... A... All right, I appreciate it. Yeah. Okay, uh, Gator, you're up. Hello. Florida Gator, by any chance? So you can give us an update from the Everglades. All right, Gator. Gator going once. Gator, if you're uh, new to calling, by any chance, you have to unmute yourself by pressing the button in the bottom left-hand corner of the app. All right, well, sorry, Gator. Uh, feel free to come back on the queue if uh, you so desire. All right, Daniel, hey. Hey, Michael, how's it going? All right, how are you? Yeah. Uh, just curious, I don't know if you've talked about it already, I, unfortunately. Sorry, just... No problem. But I was curious what you're thinking about the, uh, the news in Ukraine. What news in particular? Just the uh, Russian retreat from Kherson. Um, you know, obviously, I've I've seen that. I know what was announced ostensibly by the uh, general who was appointed by Putin to kind of oversee the, the war effort. Um, uh, you know, I'm just kind of waiting and see. I, I think it's just worth taking a wait and see approach to. Assess what actually materializes. I, I don't know. Um, I guess I'm reserving judgment. I, I can't really say that I have a firm uh, take one way or another about what it uh, portends or what to infer from it. I know I've seen people suggest that you know it's uh, it was you know, one of these so-called tactical withdrawals to fortify like the defensive lines that Russia plans to um, you know erect. Uh, through the winter, I, I don't know. Maybe that's just speculation. But uh, you know, I, I just like to get some a bit more information before I conclude anything. Um, but I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it seems like it's uh, it's pretty disastrous for them. It like is what is, and, and I agree. 
but there's there's definitely fog of war all around it but um uh yeah like i mean in every way political strategic and tactical it's it's a huge loss for them and uh yeah i and it's looking like there is there has definitely been a withdrawal going on for some time so it might not be a massive route but um, well yeah they've it's been weeks since orders were issued to evacuate first you know civilians to evacuate the city right yeah that is correct and so there's been chatter that obviously they were also withdrawing troops and equipment at the same time because some some estimates were saying there were 30 to 50,000 Russian troops on the right bank or the you know the north slash west side of Kherson. Um, now, I mean, uh, my understanding is, and I'm not 100 percent sure about this, but even though they've with you know announced, let's say they do withdraw from the city as as has been announced, there are still going to there are still Russian forces present in Kherson, like Oblast, right? I mean, they haven't fully yes. withdrawn from the region just if they merely because they would have withdrawn from the city. Is that right? That is correct. Yeah. And actually, okay. so they even had some settlements under their control in Mykolaiv Oblast. Um, but right. uh, Ukraine has announced that they've fully regained all those since the withdrawal. So... Uh, Russia has no foothold in Mykolaiv Oblast anymore. And then uh, beyond that, you know, Kherson was the only regional capital that they were able to successfully take. Uh, And that was in the first week of the war. Right. And now, uh, yeah, they're losing it. I I thought I had read that Russia had erected these extremely heavily fortified defensive lines in portions of Kherson uh, Oblast, maybe not around the city itself, but, you know, in the yeah, they're on periphery the of it. Of I mean, have, now, have, have those been abandoned or are those the places where Russian forces are still present or still like going to be present, even if they do withdraw fully from the city? Yeah. Those are on the South side of the river, uh, the Dnipro and, you know, the Dnipro is, is quite wide. Uh, yeah. And that is that was kind of their plan was to withdraw to that side right. of the river. Uh, some reports are saying you know it's going to be a problem because Ukraine actually can uh, like in terms of distance can out outrank U- uh, Russia with artillery. So once Ukraine gets artillery in place in Harrison around Harrison City, then uh, they're going to be able to just kind of wail on. Russia. Yeah, I mean, the thing I don't get, and this is more from, I guess, the standpoint of American policy, is I've seen it's being suggested uh, without much in the way of evidence that somehow this withdrawal or partial withdrawal or whatever it turns out being could you know, serve as the basis to initiate like negotiations, right? And even if they did fully withdraw, as, as stated, from Kherson City... Russia would still be occupying parts of Kherson Oblast, right? Um, and so, you know, negotiations would then seem to have to involve, 
Ukraine's making pretty substantial territorial concessions to, to Russia, uh, including in Kherson uh, Oblast, which I've seen zero indication that Ukraine has any willingness to do uh, whatsoever. So this idea that somehow this development could be the, uh, uh, the uh, prelude to, you know, really starting up these substantial negotiations with the blessing of the United States, I just don't see that. And it seems like, like the, um, the, the emphasis on that or the, 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 the fact that people are bringing it up, it's like more a matter of PR or it's more a matter of like trying to uh, indicate willingness to negotiate. Like apparently, you know, Biden sent Jake Sullivan to um, Kiev last week uh, for, for talks with Ukrainian officials and the, 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 uh, the end result of that was that uh, Zelensky issued a statement laying out like his conditions for uh, negotiation. Because rem- remember, um, I think it was in late September, Zelensky issued a presidential decree declaring that no negotiations could uh, happen whatsoever so long as uh, Putin is in power. So, you know, more or less, Putin would have to be ousted or there would have to be regime change effectuated in, in Russia for Ukraine to even entertain negotiations uh, over some sort of resolution to the war. And uh, what the Washington Post reported was that the Biden administration was privately urging Ukraine to modify that stance, not because the Biden administration actually wanted to bring about negotiations, but because the Biden administration thought that it was more prudent from a PR standpoint for Ukraine to at least have the public position that it was open to negotiations so as to like maintain uh, support. support from you know, other countries like you yeah. know, in Africa or Asia or whatever. Yeah, um, so it seems, it seems like whatever, whatever like this, this idea being brought up now that negotiations could be forthcoming because of the Hurson withdrawal, it seems like a continuation of that like, PR strategy, unless I'm missing something, which I might be because I have been... Uh, I've been focused more on the midterms for the past week or two. No, yeah, I, I mean, I think, I think for sure that actually, to me, that's a that's a sound strategy um, if they were to employ it, or if they are employing it, uh, because there's really no reason not to, at least in a facile way, entertain yeah. negotiations, um, because you don't have to agree to them. Uh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but but the the thing is. With with uh, with all of the sham referenda, Russia didn't occupy 100% of any of the oblasts that they uh, laid claim to, and so it's not really that different. Oh, sorry. Then then what was already happening? Um, well, well I, no, I, I guess my, my point is that you know if if the if Ukraine has a stance that under no circumstances will it ever make territorial concessions to Russia in order to end the war, right? Sure. And, and Zelensky even reiterated that in the new statement that was issued after yes. the visit by uh, Jake Sullivan. Um, then whether Russia partially or totally occupies any of these oblasts, they're still occupying a portion of it, right? And Yeah. Um, the portions that they do occupy, uh, according to Zelensky, will never be ceded to them. And, of so, and so, you know, what, what is the supposed basis for these negotiations 
that we're told yeah, I mean, that could be, be forthcoming. A, I just don't. I just don't really get the logic of it, other than from the PR standpoint, which does make sense, as you, you know, seem to agree. Yeah, I mean, it, it would be a negotiated settlement that Russia would withdraw their forces from Ukraine on on the whole. You know. Yeah, and uh, you know, especially with especially with the talk about you know I, I, about Crimea. Which, you know, on the six month, uh, was it six months? Or on the anniversary of the war beginning in October, Zelensky gave this big statement where he reiterated what he said in other venues and what his, you know, fellow officials in the Ukraine government have said. You know, that, you know, the war can only conclude, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but this is what he said in substance. The war can only conclude when Ukraine places its flag atop you know the you know main governmental buildings in Crimea. I mean, so basically they're they're declaring that they're you know officially now they're formalizing their declarations that their war aims have expanded pretty significantly since uh, February, and that you know the ultimate objective is to oust Russia from Crimea. So I mean, if that's what Ukraine sure. is pursuing militarily, uh, you know, with the backing of the U.S., then you know what what negotiation is going to be possible in light of that. I mean, that's why when I hear this idea brought up that, oh, you know, even at the press conference yesterday that Biden gave after the midterms, uh, Peter Baker from the New York Times, I think it was, um, asked him about this whole issue of the curse on withdrawal. And does that mean that negotiations could be uh, forth- forthcoming? And Biden was totally noncommittal. But even the premise of the, of, the, of the question didn't really make sense. I mean, what, what concession is even uh, conceivable? under uh, the current circumstances, whether or not a full withdrawal from Herson happens. I mean, it's not even explained. It's just somehow assumed without evidence that somehow this is going to make more tenable a uh, negotiation that either that each side still makes it very much seem like they'll, they have no interest in partaking in because the, both Russia and Ukraine have uh, adopted objectives, at least, you know, publicly, that have gotten increasingly more uh, maximalist and increasingly less uh, reconcilable with one another. So I, I don't see it, how that really, that fundamental dynamic uh, really changes um, even even in the aftermath of this, you know, potential uh, curse on situation. But again, maybe I'm missing something and I'm open to being corrected. No, I think, I think uh, the, the thing is, you know, like uh, it's not even clear what Russia's, goals are anymore like what are they uh the their latest stated goal is to de-satanize ukraine which is obviously insane um and like beyond that like yeah what 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 is their what is their goal currently Uh, um i don't know i mean it, it would be odd if the goal that was stated in that dramatic mobilization speech that Putin gave at the end of September, yeah. where he announces the annexation of these provinces, it would be odd if that if that's because that was the, that was a, a newly a new addition to the goal stated goals of Russia, where it was actually full fledged like territorial conquest, right? Which hadn't been the case initially. I thought at least originally he. I'm so sorry. I thought originally he just was recognizing the independence of those regions. Um, well, no, I mean, he said that, you know, well, okay, well, that's, I think that's right in terms of the initial speech, but then once right. the referenda passed, quote unquote, right. Which then is he announced that these are, later. no, 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 
No, okay, sorry. Let me just clarify. In September, okay, sorry. when he when Putin gave that speech announcing that there was going to be that mobilization of troops and gotcha. that there were going to be referendums held in those provinces, I think you're right in that he said that they were going to recognize the you know, independence of those provinces, right? But then when the referendums, quote-unquote, passed, Putin gave another speech or another set of remarks, and he said something to the effect of, and again, I'm paraphrasing, but this is, you know, pretty much what he said in substance, that those provinces which had, you know, supposedly passed referenda to join Russia, those are now eternal parts of Russia for the rest of time, right? That's what he said. Yes, um, no. and, and, you know, you know, Medvedev then followed that up with, you know, that meant that every weapon in the arsenal of Russia could be employed to defend those provinces. Now, that was a pretty explicitly stated, quote, you know, goal of the operation at this point, right? Sure. It would just be, uh, it would just be odd if that stated goal was just 100% toothless, right? Meaning that Putin never planned to do anything actionable to, you know, to uh, carry out that stated objective, right? He's just going to, abandon those provinces and act like he never said anything about them joining Russia and being eternally under the protective umbrella of, you know, the Russian state, that would just be strange. So, I mean, my, now maybe, maybe he's, maybe they've gone so nuts that that's actually what they're going to do. I don't know. But I, I, it also seems plausible to me that, you know, maybe they are doing this like strategic maneuver uh, to prepare for the winter or something. And, you know, there's going to be some new phase of the war uh, where, you know, they are going to actually try to defend those provinces as parts of Russia, as Putin stated would be the case. But again, then again, I don't know. And if, if, if it really is just totally toothless for Putin to have made those pr- pronouncements, then um, he's, uh, you know, seemingly less of a uh, formidable foe than many in the United States anyway seem to uh, present him as. Yeah, and I think that's why the talk of negotiations has come back up because really uh, there really is not any real way that Russia is going to be able to take back Harrison City proper. Uh, it's just to get back across the river with any kind of sizable force, it's going to take devastating losses. And so uh, basically Ukraine is proving that it is a classic Obama red line where it's like, uh, yeah, it's, it's bullshit. You know, like he's well, not going to, but my, my question is, okay, then why did he mobilize those? How many troops was it again? Like was it 300,000? 300, 300, yeah. 300,000. So why did he mobilize those 300,000 troops? I mean, what are they doing? Are, uh, Again, I'm not 100% sure on this cause I haven't been following it that closely in the past like two, uh, week or two. Sure. But I don't think that they've been, you know, deployed en masse to any real combat situation yet. Maybe, maybe portions of them have, but like not, yeah. there hasn't been like a giant offensive that utilizes the full strength of this mobilized force that's been called up. So you think, I would think that at some point that would happen, right? Um, you know, unless it, the whole thing was just a feint. But then again, I don't, I don't know. I mean, maybe yeah. you, maybe you, but maybe you're uh, more familiar with like the the nitty the uh, nuances I, of the, I, the details. I have been paying it. attention. You know, like obviously I'm no expert, but uh, kind of the the analysis that's been floating around is maybe seventy to eighty thousand of the mobilized troops have already been deployed to Ukraine, which would leave uh, over two hundred thousand not yet deployed. The idea there was to shore up defensive lines to either retain initiative or halt Ukraine Ukraine. Uh, offensives and gains 
um, just kind of like to throw them in there as like a meat shield, you know? And then the other 200,000 actually give them real training and then deploy them basically sometime in their, in the new year early on. Right. So if that's the plan, then what? I mean, Putin is just going to abandon that, you know, the two thirds of the mobilized forces to carry out this sort of, that sort of like next potential phase of the, I mean, none of it just seems plausible to me, which is why my kind of operating assumption when the notion of talks are brought up is that it's kind of just this very superficial uh, PR maneuvering. And, you know, helpfully, the Biden administration leaked to the Washington Post that that actually is the purpose of it. So, you know, that's uh, clarifying. But then again, I don't know. Anything could happen. Yeah, I I think, uh, you know, for sure, uh it's you know, things often change dramatically in in the situation of war, but uh, it's just going to be really difficult for them to retake this. The thing that those two hundred thousand troops don't have are the uh, seven thousand pieces of of equipment that are confirmed lost for Russia. Uh, you know, some of it their best equipment, and so. Yeah. I mean, you know, they, they do have a shit ton of, of equipment in general, but but that's a it's a massive number that they've lost. Uh, no, I, some I, I, that Ukraine sorry. has captured twenty five hundred pieces of equipment, making Russia their largest uh, arms supplier, which is kind of ironic since Russia said they want to demilitarize them. Yeah, you know, I think maybe what would be prudent to do in terms of like analyzing the nature of like the war situation is to consider that Putin and you know the leadership of the Russian government have a genuinely long-term prospectus on this war effort, right? I mean, so let's say they're at their... Um, let's say that they are uh, amenable to the idea that, you know, the war could go on for five years. I mean, how long? I mean, they they're like they, they liken it to World War II all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, that was six years for the Soviet Union uh, at least. Um, you know, and if it's it's a, if it's of the comparable magnitude, which they insist it is in their rhetoric anyway, you know, then maybe that's sort of like the planning time frame that they're uh, working within. So yet you say that. It's going to be really difficult for Russia to retake uh, Kherson. I mean, for all I know, that, that's that's correct. I mean, I have no reason to doubt that. But you know, um, it's possible that there's some strategy where you know they think if they're able to deplete the resources of Ukraine or um, you know um, uh, uh, force the Western suppliers of Ukraine to um, you know, question the, the the breadth of their own commitment, um, then at a later date, maybe Russia would be in a position to more uh, effectively, you know, retake those areas. I don't know. I mean, there's just a, a bunch of different, different scenarios depending on the time horizon that you're working within. Sure. Um, that, you know, seem like they're worth at least uh, taking into account given... That um, you know, uh, the war, at oh, least for yeah. Russia's purposes, seems to be characterized as this like once 
in a generation or even a lifetime, you know, epic struggle that is like a matter of life or death. And, right. you know, that the fate of the Russian state itself hinges on Russia winning. I mean, that's why people, I think, uh, justifiably uh, can sometimes get concerned about the prospect of nuclear use. Because, you know, if Russia losing the war or even like losing in terms of some disadvantageous set, set, uh, settlement really does compromise the ruling gov- uh, ruling uh, factions of the government and uh, make it possible that you know that it'll be toppled or regime change will somehow be carried out uh, yeah. you know that, that that's the scenario where you think that you know nuclear use might actually be uh, seriously contemplated so um, yeah yeah I don't know I'm just uh, you know again this is all speculation I just think uh, I know. I know from the U.S. standpoint, which is what I have more, most insight into. I mean, I wish I had more insight into the Kremlin. I just simply don't. Uh, even though people accuse me of being paid by them, I wish I. If I was, hopefully, I could you know leverage that into getting some better information. Um, but sure. unfortunately, that's not available to me. But you know, from the U.S. <laughs> standpoint, um, you know, the Pentagon. I don't know if you heard this. I mentioned this earlier in the in the in the episode. But on election day, the Pentagon convened a meeting with all the top weapons manufacturers, all the top U.S. weapons manufacturers, like you know, Raytheon, General Dynamics, Lockheed Martin, North et cetera. Uh, yeah, exactly. And um, the purpose of the meeting was to uh, vastly expand the industrial capacity of the U.S. defense sector so as to meet demand that uh, derives from... Uh, w- Ukraine and the, the long-term okay. commitment that the U.S. is gearing up to um, to uh, offer to Ukraine, you know, and Taiwan plays into that uh, as well. That's the purpose of the, right. the meeting that was convened, and you know, and and, and legislatively, um, you know, on a bipartisan basis, uh, Senator uh, Senator Jack Reed, Democrat of uh, Rhode Island, and also James Inhofe, Republican of. Um, Oklahoma, you know, who are chairs of uh, or chairs and ranking members of the powerful uh, Armed Services Committee, uh, they jointly introduced a provision which is almost guaranteed to pass in the next uh, defense appropriate appropriations bill that will do exactly this, which will <coughs> um, greatly uh, liberalize or lessen or even remove uh, regulations at the Pentagon to allow for the extreme acceleration of this industri- production of industrial uh, capacity and um, creation of new uh, weapons supply lines and um, even the allowance of no-bid contracts to be given for um, arms to be furnished to Ukraine. So I guess my, my point is that U.S. Po- uh, US policymakers, um, you know, sometimes working a bit behind the scenes or quietly, they're gearing up for a long-term war here uh, with the U.S. commitment of resources and uh, even, you know, potentially manpower in some form, not not letting up. And, you know, because Biden, from a political standpoint, because Biden seems to have viewed these midterm election results as a vindication or a validation of the, you know the status quo of the uh, sort of policy framework here, uh, then you know he's not he doesn't seem to give any indication that he's um, inclined to to deviate from what the current uh, trajectory is. So you know um, 
I just think there's there's a there's a body of evidence to strongly suggest that, you know, the the, the current policy status quo will remain for the foreseeable future, and these um, kind of gestures toward the uh, notional prospect of of negotiations are really really just that, um, and uh, unless I see something more tangible that uh, contradicts my you know assumption yeah. there, that's going to be my working premise. No, I, I mean, I agree. I, I think, because again, there's, there's no understanding of what, like, uh, like you said, what, what Putin would accept, uh, versus what Ukraine accept. There's, there's so much distance between those two things that it's like, it, you know, like, I would, I would be happy for Ukraine to, to quote unquote go to the table to, uh, you know, uh, shut up the vocal minority that, thinks that it's, uh, you know, peace, peace, uh, at any cost. Uh, but then the next thing would just be that then, then when Ukraine didn't accept some ridiculous, uh, would you be fine to, would you, would you be fine for Ukraine to offer a territorial concession or is that off the table? I think the, the only thing I would be okay. Like, I mean, I, I could see, you know, uh, Crimea, if they're like, uh, let's, you know, actually run a real vote this time. And if Crimea wants to be a part of Russia, then fine. Um, you know, I, I, I think that would be acceptable. Uh, and what, what about the, uh, what about the Ukraine? Donbass? Uh, with Donbass, there's just no, there's no claim to it. It's, it's really not, uh, there's no, no, like, there's no large majority in the Donbass region that uh, wants to well, be a part on, of Well, because on that front, I mean, again, correct me if I'm wrong, because I haven't been following this closely uh, in the past couple of weeks, but my, I, I'm not aware of the, uh, I mean, have the, have the front lines in that eastern front really changed all that much lately? Uh, yeah, I mean, like, I... Like, uh, it just depends on what you think is lately, but, uh, you know, Kupionks I don't know, past a uh, month. Yeah. Kupionks was the, was the last big take, uh, after Izium. And then they have been pushing steadily towards Svatov and Krimina, which okay. would take them into like Lysychansk, uh, which is getting deeper into Luhansk Oblast. And again, uh, uh, Russia controls most of Luhansk and then maybe like, I don't know, 60% of Donetsk currently. Uh, and that's kind of, that's kind of similar to how it's been for the past eight years. And yeah. so, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's up for debate, uh, whether, uh, or like how long it would take to make some kind of, serious gains there but uh again there's there's no uh there's just russia has no real claim to it so yeah well i think you know the thing to keep an eye on at least again from a u.s policy standpoint is that there's been talk about a an additional uh supplemental war appropriations bill being passed during the lame duck session 
Um, I think there might be slightly less urgency to do that, uh, given that Republican gains were not as expansive sure. as had been assumed, although the Republicans probably still are going to take a slim majority in the House, so you know, maybe they still will right. move forward with this bill. Um, but but uh, you know, Richard Blumenthal uh, said at uh, his debate, this is the senator from Connecticut, you know, was reelected. He said at his uh, debate with his Republican opponent a couple weeks ago, uh, I think it was actually just, maybe just a week ago, actually, that um, he, plan- he, he uh, uh, has every reason to think that, you know, in December, um, Congress will pass the largest war funding bill yet. He actually said it could be as high as $60 billion. Wow. So, I mean, that's the thing to, uh, I would... Uh, Keep an eye on as like an indicator of like what uh, trajectory uh, at least the U.S. thinks this uh, thing is headed down. Because if they pass a sixty dollars war appropriations bill, I mean, would they do that if um, you know uh, it, they weren't uh, digging in for the long haul? Uh, I don't know. Right. Right. Yeah. I was curious if you heard about this. Uh, there was some reports that were saying that maybe like uh, troops and. Uh, commanders on the ground for Russia were asking for a withdrawal well over a month ago, and uh, Putin denied it uh, until because uh, he was holding out for U.S. elections, <laughs> and he was going to see if uh, Republicans would win uh, in order to uh, maybe like stunt the the funding that uh, Ukraine was getting from the U.S. Uh, and and then it it is weird timing. Like I don't know, it's probably not true, but it is weird timing that like they announced this withdrawal basically on election day. Um, and well, I mean, if that's what, if that's what Putin really thought, and that's what he was yeah, waiting well, for, I, then he he was he was just as uh, confused as much of the media was about Republican intent, oh, totally. and, like Republican positions that were actually being taken with, with regard to Ukraine. So uh, he's yeah, not getting good information totally. in that case, but I have no idea if that's true. I mean, who knows? I think that they've just, you know, I think generally he's seen them as the more uh, easily manipulated party, whether that's actually true or not. I'm not, not making that judgment. I'm just saying it seems like that's the calculus that he's made. Uh, uh Possibly, but you know, yeah, I'm kind of uh, wa- wa- wary of like uh, all these attempts oh. to mind read Putin, and you know, totally, yeah, that's fine, I mean, yeah. yeah. And I, that's that's what I keep saying is, you know, like I've always been more interested in what he does than what he says. Yeah, me too. Same goes Thanks for the U.S. Though. or same goes for I mean, same goes for you know pretty much any government sure. actor. Um, sure. Yeah. All right, uh, Daniel. Well, uh, thanks for uh, joining, and yeah, uh, maybe we'll talk again sometime. Yep. Um, all right, uh, John, looks like you're up, and we'll close it out with you. Hey, how are you? Um, hey. Great work. Uh, so oh, I'm probably going to have a different opinion that might piss some of the people off as far as uh, the Russia thing and uh, Ukraine thing. And I'm not a Putin apologist in any way, but I, um, I am a realist. And when I look at the situation, like, and I've listened to, like, all of Suleviken's, uh his speech, I've listened to... All of Putin's speeches, like I've I've done my homework in like non-biased ways as best as possible to kind of get the entire picture. Because clearly, you know, you want to make the best judgment possible based on information. And like I see it as that they're very rational, Russia, and 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 clear in what they want. They've been adamant. They want everything they've taken so far, literally, with those borders that were Soviet reestablished in those regions, 
and they want Crimea, and Ukraine has to recognize it. Zelensky's got to go. No NATO ever, no U.S. weapons, and they have to agree to become a neutral uh, country in the way that Switzerland is. And if they do that, then Russia will withdraw. Other than that, they're never going to withdraw, like under any circumstances ever. So, like, well, I think well, that, like... Hold on, can I ask you a quick question yeah. to clarify? So have they... Because maybe you've been following this more closely than I have recently. Has Putin or um, anyone else of note reiterated recently that, you know, quote unquote, Zelensky must go, or in other words, there must be regime change in Kiev? Have they said that recently? Well, they haven't, like, called it out by name, but, like, but the reality is, is that when you when they say the government has to basically change, I think that they're go that I perceive that as they're going to allow him to leave under whatever favorable circumstance he wants to do whatever he wants in his post, you know, presidential life, but that that's not going to be a problem that they're going to want to deal with it from like their own internal security standpoint, just as with the Ukrainians, they would want Putin to leave for the same sort of reason. But so, and they haven't at all taken that off the table. In any way, the other thing that I think is like well, yeah, well, right. I mean, which means that this whole idea of negotiations potentially, you know, being imminent is seems farcical. What? So it's they're going to negotiate? Nonsense. They're going to negotiate for uh, Zelensky to impose regime change on himself? Right. Like no, no, no. Like so, and then the, the whole Kursan city situation is also there's like more to that than like you guys were talking about. The first thing is is that there's been an internal debate and like like fighting between the generals and Putin and the different sides of the military about what to do about this city since day one. Because they know that if they don't hold it, that they can they don't have the logistical issues of getting over the river. All right. And that's extremely, that's an amazing tactical edge. But on the flip side of it, if they allow it to be taken, then Ukrainian artillery somehow gets into range where they can pepper Crimea. All right. Not so much in the way to destroy it, but they can hit, they can, they're in a position to, to mess around with it. So you're giving up that safety on the other side. Then there's the whole thing of the history of Kherson City. Kherson City is just not like any other city. It was the crown jewel, like, established during the like, Catherine the Great's reign by her lover and, uh, like, like bigger, like, biggest commander. It's like a, it has uh, immense history and, like, a, like a pr- profound kind of, like, image for the people of Russia where it goes beyond just, like, okay, what's the tactical benefit? Of it, so they've been right. saying like for like public support, that's something that they don't want to let go. And plus, they also, technically speaking, have annexed it. So therefore, they would be giving a. It's kind of like negotiating against yourself. They they would be giving something up that they promised that they were going to protect. So this battle's been waging the whole time. Then when they put Sula, or they've been giving, or they've been giving up what they're saying is Russian territory. Yes, they're giving up what they're saying is Russian territory. One hundred percent. Okay. Now, but here's the thing. Sulevikin, when he came in, the the commanding general, he gave this big speech. And in that speech, he made it very clear if he feels that Russian lives are going to be lost, like prior to a battle, or that would be tactically advantageous of him to pull out of a, a city or a region, not for the long term, but to make it better for the overall war effort, he would do that, even if it was going to be a negative consequence consequence for him PR wise. 
And that was an entirely different statement and approach, which kind of like sent shockwaves through like places other than like the West of, oh man, this guy's a, a whole different sort of leader. So he essentially got his way, which is pulling out. But the reality of the situation is, is that, and, and my last point, and I say all this with like respect to everybody, because we all have our opinions and like I, and I value everybody's. I think there's also this like, this, this real, um, like, wrong perception of like the Russian military just in general. I mean, to think that they couldn't take back Kherson city, they can take all of Europe if they want. They can literally run over Europe, everybody, if America doesn't help. And right. they're the third best military in the world with the most nukes. They have the absolute, absolute best missile defense system. I mean, you remember like what happened with Syria and stuff when, when Israel got humiliated, their air force, Israel's air force was, was just absolutely decimated by their legacy S-400 system that they sold to Syria. Freaking Saudi Arabia begs Russia for their S-400 legacy system. Russia has an S-500 system. Like, these are like... Well, and, and India, I mean, one of the reasons that's um, put forward as to why India has remained neutral, much to the annoyance of the U.S., is because of, like, the uh, joint sort of military relationship with... Russia and like the inflow of Russian supplies that Indian gets uh, like as a legacy of the Soviet Union relationship. But I mean, you, you wouldn't think that would be sufficient to like dictate their <laughs> diplomatic posture now. It's like whatever the it's due to the capacity of Russia militarily, like in 2022. Like, so I'm, I'm 45 years old and I grew up in an era where I was told and grew, where that like the basically the end of the Soviet Union, where all of their technology was junk. I used to think that people that would like take off in a in a spaceship from Russia were just like out of their minds because it couldn't possibly be as good as Cape Canaveral. But the reality is like that's like that kind of boomer, like old school Soviet Cold War mindset. And in the last 20 years, like they've redone things like are they America? No, because they just don't spend as much as we have. And we have an obsession with military stuff. And are they China? No, definitely not. But they are absolutely better than every other country in the world by a long shot. And they have robust capabilities. And they have one thing that America doesn't have, which is they're willing to die. Like, you know, in our country, like, we value human life. It's one of the best parts about America. In all honesty, like, we care when troops die. Whereas they have a much, much, and this is for many countries in the world, a much different perspective. And when you look at things like why, like... It's like, like the Stalingrad uh, mindset. Right, <laughs> and, and then when you look at other things, like... The people in, in Russia are enraged right now at Putin, but it's they're not enraged at Putin because he got them, dragged them into a war. They're pissed at him because he hasn't finished the war. So it's right. a different sort of mindset. So for him, for us to think that he would give up Kherson City knowing the history of it, right? Knowing that there would be, that they consider it Russian, knowing that they have the capabilities and the, and the general popular, popular belief that we can lose people to get this done. I don't see any negotiating happen anytime soon. And like, I feel very bad for the Ukrainian people because if we're going to end up in the same, with the same end, all the settlement where they're going to get these demands three years from now, why would we put so many families through such terrible tragedies of losing all these lives? And that's for Ukrainian for whatever. It's a terrible situation. But like, you know, sometimes you don't want to, it, it can get a lot worse very, very quickly. And if there's no possibility of stopping it, then why are we doing this? Oh, sorry about that. I muted myself for a minute. Okay, so what is what is your basic uh, 
read on the Kershaw situation? Like, what is what do you conclude is going on with that? I can, if I had to guess, and I'm no expert, and I don't have any like special information, but my just my gut feeling tells me that they just announced that they got their three hundred thousand people that they wanted in this partial mobilization. The Russian military wanted two hundred twenty thousand. Putin made them go an extra eighty thousand. And the one thing that surprised me was was that like like three weeks ago or four weeks ago, it turned out that for the first time there were all of the people that kind of backed out who who were enlisted and then dropped out because their time was up. They re-enlisted. There was like a huge surge of support to get into this, um, you know, these three hundred thousand. Granted, there was money involved, like that. There people were going to make a good buck for going over there. But it, you know, it was still like, you know, something that was unexpected on a lot of fronts. So what I think they're doing is just they're crossing their teeth, dotting their eyes, waiting for the ground to get hard from the rainy season, being very, very careful and methodical, and then making the moves, you know, based on what's most tactically like advantageous. But I don't think in any way, shape or form that the end result is going to give Hurson City to anyone but themselves. And I don't care what it takes. They're not giving it up. It's a cultural, like, iconic place. And, like, you know, there, there's other cities that are bigger, like Mariupol and stuff like that. But, like, it, like that one has actual meaning to people. You know, it's like if you – if it, it would be like if you, you know – it would be like if you went to England. Obviously, London is, like, some place that everybody knows. But, you know, everybody's going to say, hey, listen, like, you can't give up Stonehenge. Like, because, like, there's an actual meaning, even if it isn't that important. You know, and not to make, say that Harrison City isn't important, it is very important, but, like, there's an added important because of the cultural context and what it meant to, like, an icon's reign in the past, that they're just not going to, like, seed it over. Right. Yeah, I mean, that sounds very plausible to me, uh, but think, I don't know, I mean, I guess I'll just reiterate what I told the previous guy, which is... Uh, and and you, everything you've said here sort of uh, reinforces it. Um, I, my operating assumption, unless I see evidence to the contrary, is that these um, ostensible uh, statements of some sort of vague intent to initiate negotiations um, seem like purely some sort of uh, non-specific PR strategy that really shouldn't be taken as anything other than that um, until, you know, there's actual hard evidence that either side, which would include the U.S., is actually interested in uh, negotiating in any substantive way. And, uh, you know, just some people kind of floating ever so vaguely the prospect of it, that's not evidence. That could just... uh, as easily be and probably is, at least as I can tell at the moment. Um, again, just this like rhetorical uh, posture that the U.S. is trying to, um, you know, gently encourage, not just for its for on its own behalf, but on U- Ukraine's behalf, so as to like, you know, uh, maintain the current something approximating the current level of international support. So, you know, to keep the weapons flowing, to keep, you know, the general economic uh, aid flowing uh, and that sort of thing. Um, because, yeah, I, mean, I think it's fucking nonsense. Because, yeah. you know, because, I mean, I, I, everything I've seen is that, you know, as expected, as you would 
expects for uh, when a war uh, goes on as long as this has, and you know, the, both sides get more radical and emotionally invested and um, unwilling to compromise and uh, you know, vengeful toward their enemy. And uh, so, you know, in light of that, the idea that all of a sudden somehow, you know, Ukraine is just going to on its own accord agree to the um, kind of pretty extensive and uh, dramatic uh, concessions that Russia, you would think, would demand pursuant to any negotiation. That's just not uh, conceivable, um, which you know, kind of highlights the bind that the United States is willing Will, willfully put itself in where, you know, it keeps repeating this mantra and Biden just repeated it again last night or yesterday after the midterms when he was giving his press conference, you know, quote unquote, nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine, um, as though Ukraine has the ultimate agency in this arrangement, um, when, you know, clearly it does not in that when the U.S. says nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine, that's the U.S. making a policy determination on the basis of its own agency. Um, so, you know, the U.S. could just could say nothing about Ukraine without the United States and it would be within its power to do so. Whereas, you know, Ukraine doesn't have the power to make any kind of overarching uh, policy or strategic or military decision like that. I mean, they're only doing it as a function of the U.S. extending, you know, indefinite largesse and, you know, integrating it to the very um, you know, operational nature of the military effort. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. There's another point, too, like that. Like, you have to remember that, like, there's also the grotesque, like, economic financial aspect of this. Like, every single thing with the war, um, like, that war act, whatever, from the 40s that they're using to send the stuff over, everything they do, every ounce of, like, ammunition, every single thing is a loan. Like, we're not giving them money. Everything's alone and everything will be paid back, just like it was in World War II. Like, when World War II, we did a lot for um, England, and England owed us a, a interest, <laughs> a interest on that money and interest on that time for every single thing. And in fact, World War II, the debt that England had with America for World War II wasn't paid off till 2020, all right? So we're also loading up this country with like what will probably end up at a, as a hundred billion dollars worth of debt so we can control them and we can make a quick buck off of them, which is complete bullshit in the process. Because ultimately, if we're going to end up at a place where we're going to have to negotiate anyway, where what we're doing is we're just trying to profit off like ruining families and killing innocent Ukrainians for a battle that we know is going to end a certain way anyway, because we're going to be able to make profit and control them via profit and via loans for, you know, the next 50 to 100 years. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's always it's always possible that that debt will be written off. I mean, I actually don't think that Britain repaid the full debt to the United States in terms of like the value of the armaments that were given to Britain. They did repay. They did repay like the the loans that were given eventually. I think it was two thousand six actually. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're right in that. Like, uh, you know, Ukraine's now going to be a debtor to the United States, at least in some fashion, even just politically and diplomatically, you know, uh, for the foreseeable uh, future. And, you know, it could it could go well beyond $100 billion, at least judging by the preparations that the Defense Department is making now to dig in 
uh, with expanded industrial capacity for a much longer term U.S. military commitment. So, I mean, maybe a hundred thousand uh, or a hundred billion, rather, that could be just the beginning. And, and this bothers me because, you know, like, listen, I'm a Republican. I, I know you complain that the Republicans don't call out the other Republicans on this. I think the other Republicans that are pro this Ukraine stuff are either not thinking about this rationally. And I actually like interface with a lot of different politicians and I try to call them out on it all the time. You know, um, in fact, long how is that going? Um, well, you know, like, listen, most of the time, it, most of the time, politicians, like which politicians? Okay, so like the politicians that I interface on a regular basis are usually state based. But like, so anything, anyone from like Frank Pallotta to Billy Prempe to Mike Lawler to Holly Shapizzi to Bob Off to Kevin Rooney, like any single person that's like District 39, District Wait, 40, you mean, New you Jersey. Mean, you mean fr- uh, Frank Pallotta who, who just ran against Gottheimer? Yes. Well, okay. Well, he's not he's not state based. That he, I mean, you know, he he's he was running for federal office. So yeah. no, but I'm saying like any single Republican that's in right. my sphere, yeah, yeah. like I want to make sure that they understand the complexities of this issue because, quite frankly, and I'm not to take my own party, but they tend to be fucking idiots, yeah. right? <laughs> like, like they really do. Like it's it's unbelievable how naive and how like uninformed they are about very very important issues that they will face. The second they get to wherever they want to serve, so now, yeah, I, mean, I don't know if I don't know if you read my Substack this week, but I, I interviewed briefly this Republican, this guy uh, Jeremy Schaefer, who was running in Western Pennsylvania. Actually, ended up losing, which was sort of surprising for me. I wouldn't have anticipated that, but he, he lost to uh, his uh, Democratic opponent in an open seat. Was. Uh, seemingly, it was very favorable for. Uh, it was the seat that Connor Lamb uh, vacated when he tried to run for Senate, actually against Fetterman in the Democratic primary. But anyway, I talked to the guy, and um, you know, he at least claimed that he just hasn't given any thought to the Ukraine issue. I mean, I mean how, it, how, it couldn't, how, have, it couldn't have been a more empty-brained answer. Now, I don't think he's a dumb guy. I mean, he's actually a rare. He was, he was somewhat of a rarity in that you know he one of his big qualifications for office was that he had a PhD in. Um, engineering of some kind from uh, from Carnegie Mellon but like for some reason when they're running for office they have to just act really dumb yeah, well yeah I mean they act like you know like that they're deer in the headlights and you know so like for instance like Lawler who won district 17 who just came out you were doing, saying the thing about like when he was on um he's the, like the Democrats are worried yet he now wants to back you yeah right? yeah so he was on he was so on I, CNN so, uh, I think this morning yeah, so yeah. I know him personally like, I know him personally, I'm friends with him, like, we text each other, like, and not, like, some bullshit relationship, like, actual friends. And with him, he's, I totally disagree with him. I, Mike, if you're listening to this, I think you're fucking wrong about Ukraine. <laughs> is his right. wife really from Moldova? Yes, she is really from Moldova. Okay. And, the, you know, the first time I realized that, like, was recently, and I kind of got a bad feeling in my stomach about it, you know? And I was like, oh, no. Now, with him, though, his reason is justified for him, which is, and I don't agree with it, but it's that he has family issues. His mother-in-law is from there. He's a big time family guy. And he, for personal reasons, wants to keep this going because he wants to support Moldova. I, for one, think you shouldn't be doing anything based on what's good for your family. Well, that's a hard, I mean, I mean, no offense to him. I mean, I, 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 I don't, I, I have no reason to disbelieve you that he's your friend, but that's a, 
that's a bullshit reason to <laughs> I know. take a public policy position, especially on something so consequential because of your mother-in-law? What he, really? He, okay, he, then stay he, a private citizen and, you know, favor <laughs> stuff for your mother-in-law and for Congress and start legislating on that listen, in such narrow parochial ground. Listen, Mike frames it better, okay? Like, so it doesn't sound so shitty. However, when it all comes down to it, like, that's the reason. Like, his wife and his mother-in-law are from there. They have family there. He will tell you openly that he's worried about it and that the talking point that Putin's a thug and that he should be stopped. Now, it's wrong. Like, you know, I totally disagree well, with him. at least he's sincere. I mean, based on what you're telling me, at least he's, he's sincere, sincere about sincere. it. It's not, that, it's not just sincere. He's sincere, and he's thought about it, and he's made his decision, and that's what it's based on, and he'll look you in the eye and tell you it. And did okay? that come up? I mean, I hadn't, I didn't follow that race that closely. Did that come up during the campaign at all? I mean, was he pressed no, on that position ever? No, he just, no. Like, how, how Lawler won was that, First of all, he's an extremely smart, very, very competent operative in, in his own right. He's co-owner of this company, Checkmate Strategies, which is like kind of like the cash cow um, political consultancy for like New Jersey politicians. Everyone from like, you know, Tom Kane to the Tom Hugh or Bob Hugan. Um, he ran the campaign. Hey, uh, John, you just, um, your audio just cut off. I don't know if you can hear me. Okay, you're back. Yeah, you're back. You're back. So, um, uh, so like, yeah, so he owns half of one of the best lawler, one of the best political consultancies in the state. Well, I mean, the guy's clearly very politically adroit. He beats the chair of the DCCC. He he also was the uh, New York State chairman of the uh, Republican Party, very young. And so he understands the nuances of how to run the organization from like that side of things. And he has the inroads to make sure that he gets the resources he needs. And then lastly, he is very, very smart. He has the entire Hasidic block. 100%. Like every, like when you drive around in Rockland County, I can't even, his campaign signs are in Hebrew. Yeah. Like, like, uh, right. so that's, uh, so his district includes what is a curious Joel. I mean, I might not be pronouncing that right. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Like, so I was, which is a, like, which is a wild, I mean, if anybody's in the New York, New Jersey area and they never visited that place, go just to check it out anthropologically. It's, it's uh, yes. wild. 100%. And so he has a hundred percent support from them. And, and, um, and it's not because he even promised him anything. He just very early on, he made the right inroads. They vote as a block and they love him. So he had that to his side. So that's how he won. But he's a very smart person. He's not one of these fucking like, uh, I don't even know what to say. They're just the, the most uninspiring dipshit Republican candidates that will get manipulated <laughs> the second they go down there. You know, and, and I'm saying this as a Republican because I don't really care about the Republican Party. I care about America. Right. So, like, if there's something that can be done by a Democrat, like I'm all in, like I want to I want to listen to what other people have to say. You know, the hardest thing that I have to that I constantly fight about is I'm pro student debt relief. Right. Most Republicans aren't. And they're adamantly not. And they they can't believe it. They just can't believe that I take that position. Whereas I say, listen, it's fraud. Number one, you can't expect you, uh, you can't give a loan to a minor that the person can't get out of that can have a variable, uh, a non-fixed interest rate if it was 2006 or earlier and like can hound you for the rest of your life. 
and the person's a minor. And if it's fraud, then the loan gets written off like every other fraudulent loan that's ever happened in America. You write that thing off and then you make a lot of stop it. Okay. It's as simple as that. It's not even about it. Now, hey, 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 John, just just to go back to Ukraine for a second. I mean, this is interesting, but I'm just curious. Did you follow that race in New Jersey at all um, with the guy Bob Healy versus yeah. Andy Kim? Yeah. Where there was a lot of hype like toward the end that it could actually be competitive and then yep. Kim ends up winning, I think, by 11 points. Yeah, okay, so I covered, I covered that race a bit. I mean, I, I, I spoke to Andy Kim. I, I went to some Bob Healy events where he appeared with Chris Smith. And, you know, Chris Smith is just this, uh, I don't even know how to characterize him. He's a yeah, he's fossil. A um, yeah, I mean, the guy, the guy doesn't hold, he's, you know, he's a resident of Fairfax County, Virginia, doesn't hold any town halls. And, you know, the minute, I mean, you should have seen him and his aide, uh, have a, a temper tantrum the minute that I tried to, you know, politely just approach him at a public event to do a quick interview. It was like I was, you know, the, the Grim Reaper or something. Um, uh, he's such and, an uh, he would, my friend Mike Crispy, um, you know, primaried him and Mike, and he, uh, he, he wouldn't debate. He wouldn't engage. He's just a, he's a swamp, like, for lack of a better word, a swamp creature. He's, you know, getting rich and doing his thing based on not helping anyone. Well, he's wanted nothing more than to just be a politician since he was 25 years old. Yeah. I mean, the guy's the second, the second longest uh, serving Republican in the House now at this point. And I think he got elected when he was um, 28 or something, and he had run two years before that. And then managed the campaign like two years. Before. I mean, so he's one of these people that's just like a preternatural uh, politician, where that's their highest aspiration in life. I just don't really trust people like that for the most part. But anyway, that's not the point because, like, um, you know, he was uh, at you know different events and stuff with Bob Healy. So I, I uh, you know, was just covering them, and um, you know, I, of course, like with a guy like Bob Healy, I'm curious to know if he's given any thought to, you know, the foreign policy issues of the day, which happened to be at this point, Ukraine, and then also more tangentially, Taiwan. And if you listen to the, the one debate that Healy and Kim did, um, Healy, you know, who's, who's, you know, I'm not even trying to demean the guy, but, you know, he inherited uh, his wealth from his father who founded this yacht company in New Jersey in the 60s, okay? That's how he came into the position where he's able to, you know, largely self-fund uh, a race, although, you know, he did get support from the National Party, you know, as time went on. Um, so uh, if you listen to the one debate between Kim and Healy, Kim said, uh, or uh, Healy, rather, tries to demonstrate that he's willing to buck his party, to buck the Republicans on one particular issue. And can you guess what it is? On Ukraine, because he was put, a question was put to him, saying, you know, that what do you think about this comment from Kevin McCarthy where Ukraine's not going to get a blank check? And Healy said, well, you know, actually, that's a great example of an issue where I'm willing to, you know, be independent-minded and buck my own party and make sure that we continue standing uh, with Ukraine and, uh, you know, fund them, you know, indefinitely and, you know, continue the policy status quo under Biden. And then on top of that, you know, when the, when the, the uh, Progressive Caucus put out that letter, uh, the House Progressive Caucus put out that, you know, basically nonsensical, meaningless letter that then caused a huge firestorm and then they rescinded it. Um, Bob Healy tried to seize on that to attack Kim, you know, who's a member of the Progressive Caucus. I don't even think Kim signed the letter, um, but he's a member of the Progressive Caucus. And so uh, Bob Healy put out a statement denouncing Kim for being associated with, you know, a formation in Congress that would have proposed 
emphasizing negotiations with Putin. That's what he chose to attack Kim on. Um, and so, you know, he, he's like, a, he's a, he's, that's a perfect example of this kind of just, you know, um, I don't think he's a dumb guy, but he's not somebody who really seems to give much serious thought to much of anything. Just like takes whatever he thinks is the generic Republican view. And, um, you know, uh, if he had been elected, if there had been more of a wave, um, you know, which I think was conceivable in this particular district, it wasn't outside the realm of possibility, you know, he would have just been like Tom Kane is and, and thought that, you know, the way he's going to stick to the Biden administration and show how independent he is, is to, you know, uh, be several degrees even more interventionist uh, on Ukraine and potentially, you know, other uh, issues like Taiwan or, or what have you. So, I mean, maybe this guy you're, you're friends with in New York is more um, thoughtful, um, but I, to, in terms of the races I cover, oh, okay. who happened to be in New yeah. Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, this guy Bob Healy was just like perfectly you emblematic can't, you of can't this like compare, you know dumbed you can't down version. Lawler to yeah. Lawler was the valedictorian when he was in college. Like yeah. did, like Bob Healy, like I bet you he couldn't spell Ukraine. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, and I say this: I'm the municipal chair of Saddle River, like ruby red town, one, and I'm the head of the elected head of the GOP there. So I have what's called stakeholder status, where I can actually question people. If Bob Healy was in my district, and I say this representing the Republicans of Nixon's town, one of the best Republican towns in New Jersey, there's no fucking way I'd vote for him based on that bullshit with Ukraine. Just like I don't support Tom Kane Jr. Like, I don't give a shit. Like, if you come from a legacy family, like, I care that you're going to go in there. Like, we don't have the luxury in America to just, like, you know, have these people go in and not do anything. Like, there's so many things that can be fixed. Like, I want somebody in there that's going to fix them. The guy Billy Prempe that went against Pascal, he's awesome. Just uh, if you ever get a chance. To um, no, I didn't. Uh, I, I hadn't encountered him, actually. Um, yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I talked. To, yeah. I actually talked to Pascal <laughs> recently. Yeah. He was at, uh, he was at uh, Gottheimer's um, event with Bill Clinton. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, that guy. Uh, that guy. That Pascal, he's a he's a he's a trip. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, he's, he's 80, eighty-five year eighty-five years old, and he was uh, you know, reelected. You know, actually, his margin was close because of the redistricting. Right. Um, um, so it was it was the closest that he's um, his closest margin since I think he first ran in like '94. Was it? Yeah, Billy Prempe. He has like uh, he's a like he's a black guy from Patterson that is just like. It's awesome. It like in, in the way he runs his campaign. So he gets on like Tucker sometimes. He gets on like Newsback. He has real like legitimate talking points. He's very very sincere, and um, he ran a very very good fight against Pascal. But all of the resources of the NJGOP went to Kane and Healy. You know, like they. Well, Kane is the worst. I mean, Kane's an embarrassment. I mean, I, I'm I'm happy. I'm happy. Uh, or I'm like gratified. Just from a self-interested standpoint, that Malinowski lost just because I had that bizarre. I don't know if you followed, but I had that bizarre interaction with him where he accused me of working for the Russian government. So, uh, and the guy's just so pompous, uh, phony, like State Department, you know, pontificator. So, seeing him thrown out of Congress, I'm not going to uh, shed any tears over it. And in fact, I'll, I'll allow myself to enjoy for a couple minutes. But being replaced by Tom Kane. I mean, it's just, it's just pathetic. Well, I mean, Tom yeah, and I mean, the, the problem is, is like with Tom Kane, like, so every congressional candidate is supposed to get one field officer, and that field officer is in charge of like their campaign. 
But um, and they didn't this year. They didn't do that. They gave seven field officers to Kane, and then like to like people like Billy Prempe and to the other people. If you weren't named Healy or Kane, you essentially didn't get any. Pilata got one and a good one, but the the vast majority of people didn't, so they could push all the resources into the other. Well, I mean, that, I mean, uh, strategically, that might not have might not have been that bad of a decision because I mean, they, uh, you know. I, they focus the resources on what were the most competitive races, right? John, you uh, you muted you muted yourself. John, if you're still there, you uh, you muted yourself, and I can't uh, hear you at the moment. Um, Sorry about that. So yeah. my bad. I fucking kept hitting the button like. By my and not the at the bottom. The um, sorry, my my son's in the background. Oh no, yeah, I was just gonna say. I mean, they uh, y- you might not have liked that they didn't give enough resources to uh, Pascrell's opponent, you know, who has good talking points. But in terms of just husbanding husbanding, you know, their uh, the resources in the most effective way strategically, it seems like they probably had the right idea. I mean, they did they did nail down the victory um, against Kalinowski. Agreed, but what they what they what they didn't anticipate was that with all the hype about this big red wave, you had a lot more local interest in things. So when you saw one candidate getting overwhelming support, and then your own candidate, even if you didn't think that he could necessarily win, there was that hope in your mind. It pissed a lot of people off organically that in other years wouldn't be a, have been a problem. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, a theory that I floated. I don't know if you find this to be true, but. Um... I can't help but think that if New Jersey didn't have these strange off-year gubernatorial elections along with Virginia um, and had a competitive or seemingly seemingly competitive gubernatorial race, you know, with Citarelli or whoever in um, this midterm cycle, like, you know, most other states, then you might have seen a similar phenomenon that happened with New York where, you know, there was like this, like at least a mini sort of wave in New York on Long Island in particular and some other parts of the state where because Zeldin generated a lot of attention and resources, you know, in the last month or so, then uh, even though he lost overall, clearly that uh, generated uh, pretty significant turnout in some parts of the state and, you know, tipped a few districts where I think uh, now Republicans are going to, win something like four new districts in New York. I mean, I think if if, if there had been a, uh, a marquee race, gubernatorial race in uh, New Jersey the same year, then, you know, maybe you would have seen, uh, you know, the Gottheimer district or the Kim district or maybe even the Sherrill district. Um, maybe maybe the Republican would have won, but I think it, w- it could have been closer, you know, along the lines of what seemingly happened in New York with the, with the Zeldin uh, race kind of having these, uh, you know, uh, down ballot effects. That's a terrific point, and I never even considered that. With how that governor race would have one hundred percent made the entire field different because you would have had a, a really top line candidate for the state versus you know a top line in your area with like a congressional candidate. Because I mean, the Citarelli race. I mean, that was way closer in two thousand twenty one than even the polls had. Projected, I you know what was the final margin? It was even on election night. It looked like Cinderella might even be able to win, right? I mean, I think the ultimate margin was two or three points, um, yeah. which was a huge. I mean, that's a huge shift compared to 
2017, right? So I just think, you know, if, if, the, if Republican congressional candidates could have sort of seized on that um, in, this, in the way that the, the New York candidates did with Zeldin, then, you know, maybe some of these races would have been a bit more competitive. Because, I mean, there's no reason in theory why uh, New York, like the New, uh, the, the New York portions of the New York metropolitan area ought to, be, ought to have been as Republican favorable as they were, but not the New Jersey parts or the Connecticut parts, right? Yeah, like, I mean, like, it's kind of like what's good for the goose is good for the gander type of thing. Right, like wouldn't like you, I I can't imagine that just like if you go two miles up the up the road that it would be any different than like you know right. where we are here. So yeah, yeah exactly. I completely agree. Like I mean, it, and there's no like kind of like breakdown where it's it's not like you're going up to let's just say like New Hampshire, which is a totally different atmosphere than like the tri-state area, or to Maryland, which is different than let's say NYC, New York, uh, New Jersey, Connecticut. Yeah, even New Hampshire is really interesting, right? Because there actually was, you know, a popular Republican governor running for re-election in New Hampshire who then who won overwhelmingly, Sununu. And um, I, I know, I guess it was a bit different than than New York because it in New Hampshire anyway it didn't appear to have those kind of same down ballot effects because uh, definitely the race between uh, with uh, Chris Pappas in the first district, maybe even the second, uh, were thought to have been. Competitive, and you know, Pappas. The Pappas race was close. I mean, I think he only won by three or four points ultimately. But um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just uh, this, this midterm is very strange because there's a lot of very sort of granular level uh, variation among different regions and states that you know don't aren't conducive to like a general theory, which uh, in, a, in a way is almost heartening because it shows you that like you know, I don't know, different different constituencies in different jurisdictions vote for different reasons on stuff. And like, that's just the nature of the American system, you know? Yeah. I, I get a kick like out of Like, so for instance, like, you know, everybody's like a Republican, Republican circles are just absolutely beside themselves. Like you've never seen before that Fetterman won. How could he win? How could he win? How could he win? But then if you ask Republicans, Hey, listen, if Fetterman was your guy and he was running against, against Barack Obama, would you vote for Barack Obama? And they say, no, I'll vote for Fetterman. You know, like against Barack like, Obama. Yeah, so I've asked Republicans if who say to me, "I'm so mad that how could anybody have voted for Fetterman over Oz?" I said, "Well, if the situations were reversed and it was Fetterman and he was a Republican running against Barack Obama, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, gotcha. And then they say, then they want with a hundred percent of the time they say, "I'd vote for Fetterman." Well, right, because they vote they vote for a ham sandwich if it meant giving Republicans control of the Senate. Right. So I say, so then how are you so upset that? that it happened in Philadelphia. You know what I mean? They voted they also voted for a dead guy, too. You know, like Well, I mean, I think I think there's actually a similar dynamic in, in Pennsylvania and I made the comparison um, between Pennsylvania and New York, right? In Pennsylvania, the interest in the gubernatorial race waned. I mean, their National Republican like the uh, National Republican Governors Association or the Republican Governors Association basically gave up on Pennsylvania very early. They weren't putting any money into it. Um, they abandoned Mastriano for whatever reason because the polls looked bad. Um, whereas, so so interest in that race waned in the closing you know month or so of the election. Whereas the opposite was true in New York, where Zeldin seemed to be getting this momentum, so he got an influx of resources. And you know, DeSantis goes to New York and uh, Youngkin, and there's a whole uh, you know frenzy of of uh, hype around uh, New York. Uh, with Zeldin potentially being able to to win, whereas again, where, whereas like the opposite was assumed about uh, Mastriano in Pennsylvania, so I think that also probably had down ballot effects, where you had a lot of these very close races. I mean, I'm I'm right now still in Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania, where 
I mean, I would have, if you had asked me, I thought it would have been pretty likely that the Republican would have won this particular district against the Democratic incumbent. Right? I mean, Trump won this district in 2020, and the Democratic incumbent congressman won as well, which is pretty idiosyncratic. And you thought that maybe that would sort of even out where it becomes more solidly um, Republican. It didn't happen. It looks like um, even with the vote shenanigans, I don't know if you heard my description of it here in Luzerne County, but um, you know, where they ran out of paper, supposedly, for the polling sites. But I, I mean, I think the decisive factor very well could have been that, you know, it, it, the, um, the energy around the gubernatorial race was so deflated um, that it, uh, it meant that the, those tight races were sort of uh, where Republicans lost. Uh, it, it caused Republicans to lose the edge in those tight races, whereas in New York, they gained the edge because of the momentum around Zelda. You know, and those gubernatorial, like, people don't realize, like, you know, I've been and raised a lot of money for Republicans and, like, had, like, put on fundraisers with my family for everyone from, like, Chris Christie to, um, the list goes on and on and on, but to Tom Kane, like, when he was running for, uh, Chris, Chris Christie's thinking about running for president again, you see that? Yeah, yeah, that's like, like, yeah, you know, I gave up on Christie when he did that shit on the beach. You know what I mean? Like, that was my out when he was just like, when he went on the beach and told everybody that they couldn't. So that's what I said. <laughs> and he was like, caught on camera with the, uh, yeah, yeah, like, like, he was supposed to be the, you know, above board guy. You know, it's kind of like, um, how Glenn Greenwell talks about that guy, Sergio Moreno. And he was like this above, like, not that he was the most ethical person. And then turns out it was like he was a crook. Well, like with Chris Christie, I'm not saying he's a crook. But what I'm saying is when he went on that beach, like his entire, like, every single thing he built up and knowing him also personally fell apart because you wouldn't do that if you were who you had told me you were. So, but, but what I was going to say was that the gubernatorial, these gubernatorial events. It's funny, just, just to interject really quickly, but my, uh, my friend of mine, his, um, his uncle, I'm not talking about, you know, a school friend of mine from when I was in third grade. His uncle, um, was Dick Cody, uh, is Dick Cody. And so when Cody was, um, governor of New Jersey, for, uh, you know, after McGreevy resigned, what was that, 2006 to 2008 or something? Um, I, I actually that. was able to go to that uh, beachside gubernatorial retreat in um, Seaside Heights in like the, the state park where uh, where Christie was uh, photographed on the beach. I mean, it's, it's a nice place. It's a private beach. It's like a mansion. Uh, but yeah. I've been there. It's uh, it's cool. But, you know, like so like but like uh, when you would so when you invite, let's just say people to whatever an event like for a state senator or even for like um, we I put on a fundraiser for Frank Pilata of all things, um, actually two of them over the years. And when we do that, you get a certain amount of interest and a certain amount of buzz. But when it's a gubernatorial candidate, there's a different level of buzz where like you could have it in one town and it reverberates through other towns that are surrounding you and even beyond that. And like that goes to like what you were saying about the lack of interest in PA may have definitely affected things in like in like non-typical ways that people aren't taking into consideration. Yeah, no, I, I think I, I, I don't. I don't see how else point. you explain the discrepancy between like between Pennsylvania and New York in terms of Republican success in those gubernatorial races. Um, but then again, I don't know. It's just a theory. Uh, so but anyway, I'll, I'll um, you know, let the next guy go or whatever. And I want to thank you for uh, 
letting me talk and um you know you do great work keep it up man yeah appreciate it uh, you know, send, send me uh send me a dm on uh, twitter if you follow me or email me or something and maybe uh, we'll follow up okay yeah absolutely i'd love that all right sounds good see you later Bye.